the other thing that the other giveaway was you weren't breaking a sweat. Yeah, I just did a hundred pushups. Not bre- I'm not glistening. I, you see me glisten? I, no. I, I got to the point where I was glistening. I did push myself. I didn't just like you know. Yeah, but that's after you quit sandbagging and got to your potential. <laughs> yes, and he would literally have a short run for us would be like six miles. And I used to love running until the DEA Academy, and after that, I hated running because he would literally think, okay, so. We would run maybe five miles. He'd take us, bring us back to the track. And when you hit the track, the track is like, we're done. He would have us run the track and we're sprinting in because we're like, this is the end of the run. And then he'd take us back out again. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I just gave my all on the sprint in and we're going back out. So I just, when I, when I realized he was playing that type of game, I just stayed at one pace. Just stayed at one pace. I was not, I can't kick in until I know that it's the last of the last. No, I was going to say, did you ever watch the series on HBO called Band of Brothers? Uh-uh. Oh, you got to watch it. It's about uh, training up for World War II. I mean, uh, D-Day. And and this one, when they're training through the paratroopers back then, what they called them, they had this hill called Kurahi. Okay. And it's the same thing. They had this Captain Sobel, Lieutenant Sobel at the time, just a real ass. Almost, <laughs> this is the exact thing. You get done and he's, hey, guys, eat, eat, eat. Let's, and everybody's chowing down. They finally get to eat. He says, oh, everybody, dress in your PT kill. We're doing curahi. So you got all these guys thrown up because they just had a huge meal, screwing with their heads. You got to, if you ever get the chance, watch that. You will appreciate the minute they go to curahi. That's exactly what they did to you. Oh, we're done. No, let's go back out. Yeah. Well, it was just, it was the whole class, but I was just like, okay. So at that point, I'm like, I have to stay here. You're not going to get a kick in because it's just going to be like right here, just in case we're going back out. Because literally, I almost died the first time he did that. I was like, I just gave everything that was in my tank for the kick in because you want to finish strong. You don't like the the ribbon. You like it. But yeah, when he did that, I was like, oh, no, I can never do that. I'm just going to stay right here at this pace. Um, and I was never at the end. I was always at the front or middle. But it never seemed good enough. It was crazy. And... So I dealt, I dealt with that. And then I, for the, our defensive tactics test, um, we're usually, when we're doing our exams and stuff, we're going like 50%. Is, you don't want to go more than that. And typically, they'll pair you up with someone that's equal height, height, weight type of scenario. Well, when we took our, <laughs> our defensive tactics test. You got the football player, didn't you? I did. And let me tell you. There was many times when I was going through that academy, I was dazed, literally dazed. I would get hit, and I think it was some intentional hitting, but that's okay because I said in my mind, that's okay because if I get hit in the field, I'll know how to take it, and I know I can work through it and still give commands or whatever. But I would literally just be like, the room would be spinning, and I'm still like giving commands and handcuffing and doing what I need to do. <laughs> I think it prepared me, literally. So, but so before we, we took the exam, they put me with the biggest, craziest guy in class. And I tell you, he was going 100% on that bag. And he ended up smashing my, jamming my wrist. I thought it was broke. So they had to take me to the, the medical center and it was sprung. So I didn't even get to finish my test. <laughs> so that freaked me out because I'm like, okay. So when am I going to be able to finish my test now that my hand is, is um, sprung? So when I got cleared and like I say, I thought my, my, my instructor for my defensive tactics instructor had issues with me and he was going to be the one that was going to be evaluating me. I, that brought me all kinds of 
fear because basically whatever he evaluates is what he evaluates. And I had never, like I say, received any negative feedback from the other instructors as far as my handcuffing and all the, the drills that we have to do to pass the, the, the test. And unlike college, you can't go back in and say, what do I have to do to get an A? Whatever he gives you, that's what you get, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, but by the grace, um, a different instructor actually scored me because I had to go back separately and finish the test. Did you ever think you were getting some divine intervention here with like that firearms instructor and the PT instructor? <laughs> Morgan, let me tell you. So there was a girl in class 133, and I'm going to say her name because I love her to death, and she was my ride or die, Karen DeRoe. So we would, she was a black female that was in the class ahead of me, and she Very was the quiet, only female. quiet young lady. Never, yeah, right. <laughs> did, did she hug you? Did she hug you? Oh, big time. It's like a yeah. bear hug She hugs everybody. I'm like, Karen, you can't just be hugging the bosses. <laughs> <laughs> but we would literally spend hours talking on the stairwell in between the, the dorm floors and praying. And literally praying. And when she left, when she graduated, it was hard for me because I had no one else. How far ahead of you was she in the academy? Like four weeks or eight weeks or? Um, they were like, they were like a, a month ahead. So, cause when she left, I still had a month to go. So she wasn't there when I had to, to, the, the, to do my follow qualifications and stuff like that. So fast forward, nothing. I passed my, my defensive tactics test. I pass everything the night before we have our final fats efforts, um, train our test which I didn't even know it was a test because nobody else shoots for their job on a FATS machine. And I don't know the acronym for what FATS means. Firearms Training System. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, and just explain that to the listeners, if you would, a little bit. So it's like a a video game that takes you through scenarios, no shoot, shoot scenarios. And when you, if you shoot or don't shoot, you explain your actions. And that's the the purpose of it, to kind of have like real life because it's people like, um, with guns, without guns, reacting, and you have to react to like you would be acting, reacting to a citizen. And you know they've got they've they've obviously that's improved a lot, but they had fats, and then they came out with fats too. And the original fats, if you shot, that was the end of the scenario, right? But fats two had branching, so you would shoot, and based upon whether you should have shot or you missed, then it would branch to the follow on. Like if you shot the bad guy. Or, or you, you know, whatever. It's like then it would branch and show him falling down, but you missed the other bad guy because you had tunnel vision. Or uh, if you missed. Then, then the branching would be they shoot at you and like, okay, now you're dead. So it was really cool. It started getting almost lifelike. Like you say, it's like a real life video game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, the counselors bring me in um, the day before we have that. And they have they bring me and a Hispanic guy in, well, separately, but they we're the only two in our whole class that gets this conversation. And basically they tell me that I'm going to shoot for my job tomorrow on the fat. I'm like, excuse me? Like, what does that mean? (laughs) I was like, I hadn't got any negative feedback. Why am I shooting for my job on the fats when I passed qualifications on the range? And they were like, well, we don't know what to tell you, but we were told to let you know, be ready for tomorrow. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So I go to one of my classmates and I'm just like crying. I'm like, they don't want me to be an agent. They don't want me here. And he was like, so He's like, Regina, I need you not to drop another tier in this academy. You're on the home stretch. Do not let them get you off your game. And so I sucked it up and I was just like, okay. So when I go to take the fats, the fats is in a little trailer, (laughs) first of all. And the room that the fats machine in is even smaller. 
So when they call my name, it's like five guys in suits going to this little room with me talking about intimidation. Mm-hmm. And talk about the weapon too, because it's not your regular weapon. It's not no, the it's same a, weapon. A, a, fake, a fake gun. It's a part of like a, it's it's like a part of video game. Yeah. Yeah. And so I go into the room, these five gentlemen trail into this little bitty room with me and I shoot the target, explain why I shot. The Bay instructors high five me. Good job, Patterson. And I turn and look to these guys. They're like, okay, good. But you can tell it's that good that she passed. Oh gosh, now what are we going to do, right? So it's all fine. The same for the other gentleman that had to go in as well. He goes in after me. And then we get to the last evaluation for the for the, the academy. So you're closing out stuff, the folder that's going to go to your, your office. And my counselor, who has been like, he was in my corner. He was like, Regina, he was one of the ones telling me it's going to stay the course. You're going to, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. He gives me an evaluation. He can't even look at me. Like he can't make eye contact with me. And I start to read it. And I, I, this is still in my head because it was so poignant. It says, it said in there that it was not obvious that Bat Patterson had prior law enforcement experience was the statement that's written in here. And I'm like, I said, this doesn't make any sense. I was like, why is that in there? And he was like, Regina, just sign it. I was like, no, I'm not going to sign it because it doesn't make any sense. Anybody that reads my other evaluations and then gets to this one is like, why is she graduating? Why wasn't anything addressed before now? And he was like, Regina, I just need you to sign it. I was like, but this isn't right. And like I say, he couldn't even look at me. So I knew it wasn't him, but someone else because he's just a 13. You know, our, the, the counselors are 13s. Um, and so I was just like, this doesn't make any sense. And he was like, well, just go ahead and sign it because that's what's going to go to your, your next duty station. And I was like, okay. I said, I'll sign it, but I'll just, I'll get copies of my other evaluations to take with me. And so I signed it and I went to my class coordinator and I said, I would like to get copies of my evaluations because by, we have the right to get those. And he was like, okay, let me check with upstairs to see how I can get that for you. So for the last however many weeks before we graduated, I'm asking them, how do I get my records? How do I get my records? Because in my mind, I'm thinking, you just crippled me with my boss. If this is the only sheet he's going to get, he's not going to get all the other evaluations that say that Patterson was doing this and she was good in this and she did this to help the, her, her class. You're not getting that. You're just getting, it was not evident that she had prior law enforcement. And you're using a term, so we want to tell people, you're saying Bat Patterson, that's basic oh, agent training, training, right? So it's that's not correct. like you're Batwoman or Batman, right? It's like, <laughs> that, that is, I think she was. She was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so like I say, I go all the way through the academy and I'm asking, the day before graduation, my, pam- my, my mom's there, my dad's there, family came in to go to my, oh, let me back up before I even get to graduation. So- for the pinning ceremony, if you have a, a family member that's prior law enforcement, they can pin your badge. Like your and uncle it, or somebody? Yeah. And at that point, they had no stipulations on. They had to be this ranking or that ranking. It was just prior law enforcement. They could pin your badge. So I sent a, a, a request for my uncle to pin my badge. They send me back saying, your uncle can't pin your badge unless he's like an executive level at the police department. Okay, well, very good. Me- I thought deputy chief was executive level. I didn't put what his title was. I just said he oh. was Dallas PD because there was no requirement for that gotcha. beforehand. 
So uh-huh. I politely wrote back, he's the deputy chief of police for Fort Worth Police Department. Can he sign pin my badge? And they were like, oh, okay, that's okay. Then he can do it. Wow. I, you see my face, Steve, right? I'm just uh-huh. like, I do was baffled. Get, do you get the feeling that if you'd put deputy chief, they said only we can only allow him to pin you if he's a chief. I mean, they would have always done something to like one up it, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. But once they put it out there that he just had to be executive level, it's done. You can't change it from there because they didn't know his role in the police department. Uh, well, if, if I can interrupt you just a yes. second, I just want to, <laughs> you and I had this conversation on the phone and I want to just point out a couple of things. One is this is the first time. Okay. When people go through fats, it's judgmental shooting and it's a pass fail. And what they're looking for is if you pulled that trigger, why did you, were you justified in pulling the trigger? Because you may encounter that on the street and they're trying to you get you to be able to articulate it. Yep. Right. And like you say, if you screw it up, you get remedial training. Did you get remedial fats training? I never had any bad feedback from remedial at all. That's why I'm like, how am I shooting? And I never had any issue with fats that right. was brought to my attention. And I have never heard of shooting fats. I'm a former firearms instructor for DEA for years and years and years. I've never heard of shooting for your job on the fats machine. Now, I, I can understand as you're going through training where they're saying you, you exhibit poor judgment. And if you do that continually, I can see where there's going to be a problem. But you never had that. And it, my it just, bay instructor like, was like high fine, and He was like, all good. She's good. I'm like, he was probably annoyed that the suits were in the room, too, because it's like, are y'all really doing this? Is this is this really happening? I got to <laughs> Go ahead, Steve. I'm just I'm well, frustrated. Say I'm, the, what the how the hell could they get away with this? I mean, this is it's not like it's non-obvious. It's not like it's under the radar. This is obvious. Five suits and they're bringing you into a fats trailer. How the hell do they get away with that? They run the academy. <laughs> they run the academy. It's it's not right. It's, it's horrible. Uh, and I was looking for, this is very reminiscent of another lady we had on here. And I, her name is escaping me right now. That was former CIA and then FBI. Yeah. We were talking about, there was a previous episode. You found it, Murph. Yeah, Tracy Walder was uh, uh, an officer, an, an operative in the field with the CIA, and then uh, got a little disgruntled there and joined the FBI, and got treated in the academy like dog shit. Just to be real honest, I mean, she, she was, was a case officer and, with CIA working overseas, working terrorism, yep. and 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 her instructors in the academy, just like your instructors, for whatever reason, took a dislike to her. Maybe they didn't want a female in there. Who knows? But tried to get her washed out. Then when she gets out to the field, she's a shining star, does excellent. She decided once, you know, she realized it was going to continue in the field. She decided to resign and go do something she would like to do, which is teaching school now. Uh, and she's a Texas girl, by the way. But, and here's the funny thing. The guy that tried to screw over her the whole time she was in the academy, once she got in the field and proved herself, he was the first guy to call her and say, please don't leave the FBI. We need you. But I mean, what a bunch of shit. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It really ticks you off. Well, and she ended up working a very significant espionage case involving some Chinese, basically, um, plants, you know, for years and stuff. So it was good stuff. So let's circle back because the thing is we try and put, uh, you know, we don't have enough women on the podcast. Um, you know, we do a lot to get them, but we had Sherry Oz. You know, yes, Sherry. we yeah. work together in L.A. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And Sherry's a hoot. Let me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sherry, oh, that's going to hold back. Yeah. I sent, I sent her a picture recently. Well, before before I retired, I sent her a picture of us when we had abs. We were doing some undercover at a rave. And I had like this half shirt on and she had like this little cute outfit. I was like, you remember those days? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hey, did she retire? 
No, she's still no, no, she's still there. I just saw okay. her uh, talking about uh, fentanyl and some other stuff, you know, down there in Arizona. They just did a, a like a, a podcast or an interview with her about that. So good. She needs to stay on the job too. And you know, Regina probably should stay on the job, but you know, she won't listen to me. What can no, I say? No. And I'll tell you why part some of the reasons I left as we go on. So okay. well, <laughs> yeah. well, let's talk about those. So let's talk about finally closing out the academy and getting to your first post, which is LA. So I mean how did the graduation go? Was your uncle allowed to come in? How did things go? Yes. Well, he find, he was able to come in and pin me. So the night before I'm in the hotel room and I'm with my mom and my two sisters and my mom can clearly tell that I'm not happy. Something's wrong. And she asked me, you know, you know what's going on? And I said, I said, I don't think I'm going to, I'm going to continue on. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, I think I'm going to, I'm not going to go to the graduation. I'm just, I'm done with this. And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, it is so clear that they don't want me to be an agent. And I tell her the story about the evaluation and, you know, and the things that I discovered about my firearm. And I just say, they don't want me to be here. And she says, she says, baby girl, she says, they're going to be a lot of places that don't want you. That doesn't mean you don't go in there and kick down a door and show them what you're made of. She said, I thought this is what you wanted. And I said, I do, but it's obvious that they don't want me. And she says, don't let anybody take away what you want to do. And I told her, I said, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to go into the, I'm going to go to the academy and I'm going to let them give me the badge and I'm going to throw it back at them and say, you guys don't deserve me and walk off the stage. <laughs> and my mom said, well, that'll be very dramatic, but is this what you want or is it not? And I said, I want it, but I just, and she was like, just do it. Just show them who you are. Show them that you'll be a good agent and show them what you're capable. And from that point on, I was just like, okay. So the night Good before job, was not, a, yeah, because I, I was, I was like, Mm-mm. I had already called deep Dallas PD. Can I come back? They were like, sure. We didn't want to leave you, leave you, lose you in the first place. So, yeah. I was going to say, what'd you do the next day? So next day I went to the academy, I mean to the graduation and got my, my, um, my badge and my, my gun and my shield and headed off to LA. My there first assignment. My first assignment. And I direct reported. So again, overachiever. Didn't even go back to Dallas. Never even stepped foot in the Dallas office as an agent. Um, went directly to L.A. So tell everybody about that, because that was the thing we've heard other agents talk about. Because normally when you get out of the academy, you stay where you live for a while, right, to get acclimated. But you were actually, why were you allowed to go to L.A. directly? Now, did you ask for L.A. or how did you end up in L.A. too? Oh, well, L.A., my mom was in L.A., Oddly enough, she was in L.A. and my class, you know, because they, they give us a list of the assignments. And so we as a class decide who's going to go where or who we want to go where. And I was actually looking at Las Vegas, but there was a, a guy in my class who had like five kids and he wanted to go to Las Vegas because he had family support there. And I was like, if I put Las Vegas down, I will probably get it um, because at that point they didn't have any minority females to my knowledge. <laughs> um, and so I probably, I knew I would probably get it. And I was like, well, I won't put that as my first choice so that he could get it. And he actually ended up getting it. So you guys so, were allowed to negotiate as a class for your, oh, yeah. oh no yeah. kidding. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We, we weren't. Were. <laughs> <laughs> we well, got we, to commit the wish list and that, and then you yeah. got, you yeah, might well, get we, something. 
Yeah, we were able, and then we did the, we still did the list of three. So everybody had to list three places they wanted to go in the order of preference. And so I talked to my mom and my mom was like, yeah, you can come live with me because I was like, there's no way on your first starting out. Cause I came in as a GS seven, which that was a whole nother issue. I should have been a nine, but it's neither here or there. I made up for it <laughs> on the back end. But, um, so my mom was like, come live with me, you know, until you get some yourself together and then you can do whatever you want to do. So I put LA, got LA, went to LA like I say, I was nervous because of that evaluation. So my very first day, I go into the office and I meet with my um, my supervisor and I tell him, you know, he gives me the spiel about his expectations in the office and I'm all good with everything he's saying. And I tell him, I, I say, sir, all I ask is that you evaluate me on what I do for you from this day forward, not on what you've heard, because you've probably heard some stuff about me. Um, but I ask you to evaluate me from this day forward. And he was like, cool no problem and i had what was his name mike quinn <laughs> yeah yeah mike, mike and i Michael were together special operations later later on yeah he 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 was a good supervisor um yeah he he was good he 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 kind of um <laughs> i think i used to make him crazy because i would i would do stuff i was very how do i say you, you were the I'm person afraid. on the radio at two o'clock in the morning, not letting other guys grab their sleep, right? Like <laughs> exactly, in Dallas. exactly. And because I was confident in pre- pretending to be other people, that I would literally, like, like I said when I was talking earlier, and I said sometimes I would be a real estate agent because I knew real estate agents they normal for them to be in front of people's houses taking pictures or whatever. And so I would literally pull up in front of the bad guy's house, get out with my Polaroid. And start taking pictures, you know, of the location. Did and you ever I, get challenged? No, no. I would get little kids telling me who's in the house. Oh, oh thank you very much. <laughs> Why are you looking at my friend's house? And I'd be like, oh, I'm a real estate agent. Who's your friend? They'd tell me everybody that's in the house. I and then just, you follow up with the question now, do you know anybody who's looking to put their home on the market? You know, <laughs> <laughs> No, I wouldn't tell that. But if they, if they were asked who was that you're talking to, they would, you know, it made sense. Because I, I never, I never went out looking like law enforcement. I went out looking like a normal female would look in a, in the settings. And so I was able to get out and jump out anywhere I needed to. And if we were going to do a raid, my stuff was in the back. I just switch out, you know? So I, I, I wore my dresses. I wore my heels. I oh, I could just see a raid going on with you in a dress. You got to take off your heels. You put on a vest and there you are in a dress. Not in a dress, but I did have, <laughs> but I did have a scenario where I forgot my boots my combat boots and we had to go hit a house. And so I had these high heel uh-huh. leather, leather boots on, right. With oh my, my. Fat- with my fatigues, because that's all I had. Hey, you got to make it work. So that's all I had. And so it was funny because we get out and we're briefing the case and we have two black and whites that come on the scene. Cause when we're going to hit a house, we usually have black and white for police presence. And so these two squad cars pull up and the guys get out and they're looking at me like, what is up with this girl in these high heel black boots? So they put me on perimeter and I, it's so funny because I just, it's like second nature. I didn't even think about it because the bad guy, one of the targets run out the back and I see him. So I jumped the fence in my high heel boots and get him down. And the, the, one of the officers is with me on perimeter and with our team on perimeter. So he's seeing all of this and I get him down and I call clear, blah, blah, blah. 
take him, get him to the front, get him out. And when we go back to the brief, the debrief location, he's like, man, you were like superwoman. He's like, you jumped that fence in those heels. Cause he said, when I first pulled up, I was like, what is she doing in those boots? What is her problem? Like, what is she doing? But he said, when I saw you go over that fence, I was like, go girl. <laughs> you just got to say, guys, I make it look good. That's why I got the heels. Listen, oh, by the way, did you notice my makeup? My Mary Kay? Um, <laughs> yep. But, well, well, but I, but I, I notice, she had a brick in her hand. <laughs> Y'all take these things. <laughs> Listen. So, but I, that wasn't the norm. But I made it work. And it was so funny because I normally would wear high heels. I tried, when I first got out of the academy, I tried to do the the big shirt with the gun on your hip, with the t-shirt and the tennis shoes. And I was just like, it was just too awkward for me because that's not how I normally would dress. And it also, my I have flat feet. Full stop. I have flat feet. For me, flat feet hurt in flat shoes. So I stay in heels because that's more comfortable for me. That's so I didn't have really, I had two pair of tennis shoes, which are the two pair of tennis shoes I used in the Academy. That's it. And my boots, um, which I left. So that day I just improvised, but the guys used to give me so much grief. They's like, you can't really run in those heels. Can you, I don't tell you how many races I had in the parking garage at LA field division, racing <laughs> these guys in my heels. So finally they were like, Okay, she can run in the heels. We're going to leave her alone, you know. But it it getting there and after I had that initial um interaction with my supervisor, every bit of being in LA was lovely. I mean, I really loved the work. I loved my group. I loved the support that I got. Um how how did he treat the how did he treat your evaluations from the you know, from uh the academy and stuff? Did he finally just throw those in the shit can and say, "Yeah, whatever." I don't know what he did with those, but it didn't make any difference because like I say, he was fair in looking at what I did from there. And plus I was on a mission because if you, when I came out, remember, they told me I was not going to be a good agent. So I came out ready to prove I would literally work almost 24 hours a day as an agent. When I first started, my first three years is a blur because I was just humping, humping, humping. Um, and my, my, within three months of coming out of the Academy, I had my first title three wiretap that I wanted to do. And I took, when it took it to my boss and, oh, let me bet. So I can tell the public what that is. That's when you go take an affidavit to a judge in order to listen to someone's phone, legally listen to someone's phone, which we do. We don't just start listening to people's phones. We have to get permission from a judge. It goes to the attorney general. All these people have to sign off on it. And so well, I wait, went, you're skipping over something too. You're only on the job for three months. Three Normally, months. if you're writing Title Threes, how long are you on the job? Years. Yeah, <laughs> years. Over yeah. a skiver again. I'm on three months writing a Title Three. Losers. But but, <laughs> but 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 I was I was literally once I got the lead about this case, I was engrossed in it. I was like, I was single. I'm in LA. I'm like, let me just put all the numbers together. I I um, had a good Intel analyst who kind of showed, I said, no, show me what you're doing. So I don't have to harass you. So I knew how to run my numbers. I could do an address check. I could do trash pools. I could do all these things to get the information that I needed. And to do a title three, you have to clear your, what's the necessity. That means you have to clear all these things to say, I can't go any further. This is what I need to go further in my investigation. Title three is a tool of last resort. In other words, if nothing exactly. is, it has to exactly. be the final thing. 
Exactly. And so I went to my boss and I had my little folder with all my notes and step-by-step of the things that I did when I did them. And I said, I, I feel like the next step for me is a Title III. I can't get any more information without a Title III. And he was like, well, Regina, we have agents that are trying to get their, their 13. You need to give that to them. Because you, you're you're a seven, you have a long way to go before you need this type of um, investigation on your record to be able to move up. And I was like, but I did all the work on it. I worked it up. Why do I have to give it to someone else? I was like, if I don't do it, I don't learn how to do it. And because I had what we called back then the wiretap guru as my training officer or my training agent. He, I was like a sponge with him. Everything this man did, I was like, okay, why are you doing that? And I loved his training style because his training style was, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I want you to just do it. And then once you do it, we're going to come back and talk about why you chose that, that way to do it, which I loved it because it caused me to, I learned the manual. I learned the processes. I learned everything. And then he would just refine whatever I did to, to, so, okay, we're, that's good that you thought to do it that way, but this is the way you can also do it. But he never like told me how to do it initially. He was like, let me see how you're going to do it. And then we'll talk about best ways to do it. You know? So I give, him, I, give him a shout out also. George Elliott. Love you, you. Love you. Love you. Love you. <laughs> so he was, he was a T3 guru for the LA. Yes. Field yes. He, he, and he was so patient. He was so patient. Um, and so, yeah. And so I'm in the office and the boss finally says, okay, you can do it. Hey, what kind of, tell us too, just quick context. What kind of case was it? Uh, you know, this, what were you after? What were you targeting? I, it was um, um, black tar heroin case, Mexicans out of Mexico dealing um, black tar Is that tar where heroin. they come from? Mexicans come out of Mexico? I didn't know that. <laughs> You can see like, okay, like okay, the Academy you. from Dallas. No, okay, let me just tell you something. There's Chinese in Mexico that are some drug traffickers. There's a lot of other people in these countries. So I do need I do need to specify that that's what it was. I the organization. Just about driving down to the Academy from Dallas. Yes. That's right. Cooper Wright, you just learned something right there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I stand corrected. Can continue on. So, so I, he gives me the, the go ahead to go ahead and work on the affidavit. It literally takes me a month to write the affidavit going back and forth with George. Okay. Put this in, put, no, you don't need that. And finally I got it to a place where I could take it to the, take it to, first I had to go through the SAC, which was Miss Lynn, Michelle Linhart at the time. So she no reviewed kidding. it. All the ASACs reviewed it. It, um, it goes to, to, um, to the U.S. United States Attorney's Office or the AUSA that's on the case to review it goes to the Attorney General, then it goes to to, to our um office of what is it called? OEO stands for I can't remember office anymore. Enforcement Operations. Yes, goes to them. They approve it. Then we get to before a judge, and a judge approves it, and it comes back, and I get to turn the switch on. <laughs> and from there, every other part of my career is from that wiretap. <laughs> what do you what do you mean by that? Um, because it's like it's like a web that is created. Once you get on the right phone and your target is a bona fide boss, he's talking to all the other people that need to be taken down. And that's how it just it was like a spider web. It just kept And you're and you up. were lucky enough to get the center of the spider web, right? Is what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you do all these spin-off wires and it just keeps going and going. Exactly. Exactly. So, so tell us about the case. So how long did you run the, the Title III? What was the outcome? 
Well, I ran that particular one. I want to say because you get you get um thirty days. I believe it was thirty thirty days on the wiretap. And then if you don't, then you can extend it, right? And then you can extend it. Um, but like I say, the target I originally went up on, he was like kind of middle land man. So I just kept going up and up and up and up um, until we actually got it to a place because my 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 um my GS did assign a senior agent to work with me on it. And then and because I was also still on training, so I had George and I had a senior agent that were supporting me and, you know, making sure I was doing everything right. Because one and I'll tell you this, I almost got caught in a trick bag. From an, another agent, a senior agent who Say came that again, to me. You almost got caught in a what? A trick bag. What does a that trick mean? Bag in trouble. Okay. Because I mean, when you start doing Title Threes, there it's very strict. You can't just do any old thing with your Title Three or a pen register or anything like that. And so I had a, a senior agent come to me and say, Regina, can you check my number against your your Title Three? Um, okay. You mean That's, his personal number or what? No, he gave me that just a random phone number. I didn't, you know, a random phone number. And I was like, okay. But I'm thinking he's a senior agent. He knows what, if, he, if I, he, he's asking me, so I must be able to do that. And as I was sitting there, George overheard this conversation. He says, Regina, before you run that number, read your order and what your order says you can do and how you can pull phones or look at phones based on your, your, um, affidavit. And I read it and it says only numbers that you can basically look at are numbers that are on your register. I.e. I can't take another number from someone else and compare it to, if I didn't pull that number off of my pin register, I can't combine the two. Understand what I'm saying? So this agent almost got me in trouble because if I would have ran that number, against my title three, that would have been in violation of the order. Now, was that, in, did he not know or, or did, was, did he I, think that you could do it or was it a setup? I don't know, but I'm so glad George was there to hear it. <laughs> well, you know, and all he had to do was call a staff coordinator in special operations division and they would have run that number for him and then they could have made whatever connections he's looking for. Exactly. Maybe they didn't like SOD. Maybe, I don't know. know, but it was, SOD became my best friend. I think they had me on speed dial because once they knew that if they sent me something, I would work it up. I mean, I would turn over every crack and kerny to see what it, if it produced. Um, and yeah, it, <laughs> that case just kind of went crazy, crazy. And then, like I say, at once SOD knew I was in LA and I was a worker, they started sending me stuff and they basically equipped me with the targets to actually get my impact 13 and an impact 13 is where you get you get promoted to a 13 level before you're eligible to get it based on your casework and so you i actually mass and taking names yeah i actually had three investigations and you only need two and <laughs> i wrote them all up and and got it done so within what four years Four years, I was, um, I got my 13. Wait a minute. You go from a GS7 to a GS13 in four years. Yes. Yep. How was that not being an overachiever? I didn't say I wasn't being an overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> I never denied that. That was um, a trick but, but, I, but, I, but I was trying to prove that I was going to be a good agent, that I was a good agent. That was on a normal, on an average track, if you're a good agent just doing good work, how long would it have taken you to hit a 13? Just if you don't apply for the impact? Yeah. And come in as a seven? Yeah. 
That would probably take you five, five, six. Yeah, five or six I, years, I think. Five or six years. And you I think get it's it more in four. Yeah. Yeah. When you, so let's just talk about after that first 90 days. Once you got through that first 90 days, you got that Title Three. At what point did the Academy and your experience there not become irrelevant, but it's kind of like, you know what? I'm glad I went through the ceremony. That's all behind me now. When did you finally put the Academy stuff behind you? After I sat in the office with my boss. I said, as long as he's willing to give me a fair shot, I'm going to give him 100%. Well, you gave him more than 100%. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like I say, my... He's not excitable. He was, uh, yeah. he, we actually called him the curmudgeon. <laughs> you know, I, did get him a, I get, did get him a laugh a couple of times, though. So. Yeah, He's he straight faced almost all the time. Nothing yeah. excited him. So that, that's fantastic to hear that. And we, and I had, we had, like I say, my group was made up of some good agents. We had um, Nick Brooks. I don't know if you know Nick Brooks. I do. Um, yeah. He was he was the backup, and it was so funny because every time Mike would go on leave, we were doing tons of search warrants. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was like, "Okay, now we can go out." I was like, "Okay, it's cool. <laughs> Let's go kick some doors in." Um, yeah. So kick we some doors to- in in high heeled boots. Let me guys. Let me show you boys how it's it. done. <laughs> it. Look good. Get, get your bricks. We're going on the street. That was only the one time I had the high heels on. Otherwise, I had my I had my tack boots on. That's a great story. So let, let's talk about, you know, normally we kind of dive into some cases. We, you know, we want to talk about a couple things with you, but what's so impressive about your story is everything that you overcame, how you accelerated your career, you know, and how you got. So let's talk about that, you know, moving up the chain, moving up to, like you said, you got your impact 13. So now you're a GS 13, right? So GS 13 kind of let everybody know in the hierarchy, like that's what, like, that's your first supervisory role. Well, it's your, your potential to be a backup, I should say. Okay. Even, even though the supervisor can pick whoever they want to be a backup, but typically GS-13s are backups for, for groups, are training, they're assisting with basically helping the develop younger agents. Yeah, that's, it's like a journeyman role. You know, when you're there, that's as high as you're going to go unless you take management. So let's talk about that. So how long were you in L.A.? I was in L.A. for six years. What made you decide to leave? I started to I started to collect mentors, <laughs> and that's just best to be honest. People, I um could would call me or I would call them, and just say, um, how do I do this? How do I do that? And people started to say, okay, we see a leader in her, and they would literally say, okay, how when are you going to take the SAP? And I was mm-hmm. like, the SAP? What's that? That's the test you have to take to get promoted. It stands for promotion test, I think. Isn't it? Thank you. That sounded right. But it's basically a test you have to take to get promoted. You have to take it at a 14 level and a 15 level. Um, and it consists of written exams, um, scenarios that you go through to show that you're capable of running a group. This is a, and just so you know, this isn't a, a you, you don't sit down at your desk and take a test. You go into Washington, D.C., and you have senior management personnel there that are doing the test. So you're in a room with two. So if you're 13 going for your 14, you're going to be sitting in a room with two GS-15s. And they have scenarios. You get to read the scenario. You come up with your solution. Then you come back in and present it to them, and they grill you. Well, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? Why didn't you do this part? And you have to be able to justify everything along the way. And it doesn't last for one session. That's like three days. Oh, no. Yeah. I literally had to take a nap when it was done. I was like, I felt so drained. That's pretty grueling. And I and I was in I was actually at that point I had I was in Barbados at the time. So 
Wait a minute, how did you get the Barbados? Yes, and I'm, once I became a, a 13, you can get foreign. I mean, there are some people that do it as 12s, but you have to be the the blessed child to be able to do that. But so I waited till I was um, got my 13, and one of my mentors called me and said, "Hey, there's a position going to be open in Barbados." Because I actually wanted to go to Panama, and I put in for Panama, but when I put in for Panama, my Impact 13 packet was still at headquarters. It had been approved locally, but it was at headquarters. And the the country attaché called me and said, Regina, your resume is looks really good. He says, but there's no way I could select you when I have all these 13s that applied. He was like, but, you know, keep Panama in mind in the future. And when you get your 13, reach back out if we have a position. And so I said, fine. And like I said, one of my mentors called me and said, is there a position going to be coming open in, in, um, Barbados? Would you be interested? I didn't know nothing about Barbados. <laughs> I didn't know where Barbados was. I was just like, okay, I, yeah, I'll consider that, you know, got off the phone, went and found, I'm going to date us an Atlas because we didn't have the Google Maps and all that back then. So I got an atlas and I saw Bar- found Barbados, a little bitty dot of an island on a map. And I was like, okay. We did have the internet then, so I went into the internet computer and I Googled Barbados. And I'm like, okay, it's not a third world country. It's a little island. I could do a little island. Um, and so I applied. And the, the CA called me, the country attaché called me and interviewed me. And the rest was history so who was the who was the ca at that time um i don't want to say who the ca was because i'm going to tell you another story about that same ca oh, okay gotcha. <laughs> All right. so before you get to that ca why but why did you pick panama though the first time what was it about panama that said i want this this i want to go here because it, it i first of all i wanted to learn spanish and i wanted dea to give me language school so that was the reason panama and i and it was a beautiful place I knew about Panama, you know, I didn't know anything really about any other place. And so I was like, that'll be cool. I can go there. I can work big time cases from money laundering to regular um, international drug cases. Um, I just thought it would be great. And DEA is going to teach me Spanish on their dime. (laughs) So, yeah. So you're in Barbados now. So what's it like you land and, you know, now, did you get a chance to visit before uh, before you were signed or was the first time you landed in Barbados, you're you're at, you're going to work? I'm going to work, which is so funny because the guys in the office, I was <laughs> I was going to be the only female agent there. So the guys in the office started this this they were basically playing a prank on me. So one of the agents called me because um, I was replacing they they worked it out where. Well, actually, from the time I got selected, it was a year before I, till I actually reported because I got selected in 2004, but I didn't go until 2005. And how big is the office? How many people? There were five agents, um, an administrative assistant, an office assistant, and the country attache. That was our office. Oh, and then we had um, a TAT, which is like an intel guy from the military side. Any analysts? The TAT. That was our analyst. Okay. From, um, we had a military analyst. Um, and that was the office. And so... One of the guys called me. The guy I was replacing was Tim Tobert. And one oh, of the guys. One of my best friends. I didn't know that. Tim was, oh my gosh, Tim is so awesome. So, I love that guy. He was, I, you know what? And not to interrupt your story, but that's just how much I respect the guy. I made him my backup when he was a GS 12. That's what I call yeah. I, trust, I trust that guy with my life. He's a, and Morgan, he's a former Alabama state trooper, except he See. was a real trooper. 
damn right you trust troopers. <laughs> yes. He 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 was he was I'm I'm gonna share about him. So I get I they 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 decided to play a trick on me. Cause like I said, I don't really know a lot about Barbados, but they call me. One of my, um, the other guys, James Weeks, calls me and says, "Regina, there's a problem." Because I'm literally calling these guys every week. When when am I going to come to the country? When am I coming? When am I coming? They were probably getting annoyed with me. Um, and so he says, "There's a problem." He said Tim was out running and he got bit by a bat, and he's in the hospital. I'm like, "What do you mean he got bit by a bat? And there's bats in Barbados?" And I'm like, they were like, yeah, there's bats. You got to watch out because, you know, you can't just be running. You have to make sure you have right repellent on and the right clothes because they'll just fly all around you and stuff. And I'm just like, (laughs) I'm like, I'm not really feeling bats. Like, what the heck is going on? And I'm like trying to like research it. I don't find anything about bats, but he is like so convincing like this thing happened. And I'm just like, so I called some other people. They was like, yeah, he's not doing well. We're just, just keep him in prayer. We hope he makes it. <laughs> and I'm like, are y'all serious right now? I mean, and this like goes on for weeks. And then finally they tell me that's not the case. I was just like, oh my gosh. Cause I was like, I don't think I want to go to Barbados. You know, <laughs> like I'm about to, can I pull my papers back, please? Hey, but you know, um, you know what that, you know, but you know what that demonstrates right there? Uh-huh. You had a good group of guys. Cause you know what? If they didn't consider you to be one of them, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have. They wouldn't have pulled this joke on you. They wouldn't have pulled this prank on you. To right. You know, and that's why I said you get to a certain point. It's kind of like, you know, because the question I wanted to ask is, when did you finally feel that kind of acceptance? Is like, hey, people are accepting me for the work that I do, and not just because I'm a particular color or a particular gender. When did when did they start accepting me as an agent? Well, I think that kind of happened in L- in L. A. Because, like I say, I. I hit the ground running and the guys, it's like any other thing. You, once you prove yourself, they're like, okay, she's good. She got our back. She can, she can shoot. She can kick in the door with us. She knows how to do investigations. Well, anybody who can run down a suspect in high heels is always going to be my backup. Climbing the fence was a thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a chain land fence that's at that. Um, but, but yeah, in LA, I, we developed camaraderie. I mean, it was just, we had a, we had a really good group. Um, and I felt the support of those guys and, and they felt like if they called, no matter what time of day we got to roll out, Regina was rolling out, you know, the only, the only, <laughs> I still rolled out, but I had to in, include my two little, I had two little girls that, cause I don't have kids that I kind of adopted. Um, and we would do stuff on the weekends when I didn't have to work. And one weekend they called me and we had to have, we to do some surveillance and I was like, where is the surveillance? Because right now I have two little girls with me that I have to get to two separate homes to before I can come and meet you guys where you at. And it's like, oh, we're in the area that you're you're at. And I was like, okay. So I say, okay, we can do this. I'm just going to incorporate them into the surveillance. <laughs> and oh, so, this sounds like a Derek Maltz episode. It is a Derek Maltz episode. When you said that, I thought about it. And so basically I told them, I said, you guys know what I do, right? And they were like, yeah. So I said, I'm going to need your help. I'm going to go get the car. But I'm gonna need you guys to stand on the because where we were, we were like within eye shy of where this deal was supposed to be happening. It was like it couldn't have been better. So I said, "You guys stand on the corner." I said, "This is the person you're gonna be looking for." I said, "I'm gonna go get the car." So when I get the car, you're gonna tell me if he moved or if he's still there or what you saw. So I go round up the car and I get them in the car 
And they're like, oh, no, he's still in there, you know. And I'm like, okay. So we're, like, sitting now in a position where we can follow in. I'm, and I'm following in my personal car. It's like, this is crazy. <laughs> but we follow him, and they're just, like, all excited. Like, this is so cool. And I'm doing, you know, play-by-play from and my who's cell gonna phone. Ex- who's going to expect that a mom with two of her kids in the car is DA? Yeah. Clueless. 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 And they had a blast. And then they, when we finished, they cut to surveillance, and we continued on with our weekend. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. Now, did that violate any DEA rules? I was not in a G car and I didn't pull anybody over, so I don't think so. <laughs> I'm just following people around in pu- public places. It was not anywhere. Expectation of privacy did not exist anywhere. So the kids were safe. <laughs> in, the, in the NFL, it's only a penalty if the ref sees it. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I like that, Steve. <laughs> you can't throw a flag for a penalty you didn't see. But they needed someone there, and I was right there. And it was like, well, do you want me to take them back and then join the surveillance, or do you want me to take care of this? And they were like, no, let's just do it. Just do it. And I was like, okay. Nice. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about your arrival in Barbados and your attack by these rabid bats. Can I go back first, though? <laughs> What's your interview? Do whatever you like. <laughs> so I do have to tell this story. About LA. So another uh, like another case agent or another um, agent in our group was working this um, ecstasy, ecstasy case on this Armenian guy. And we were going to go out and do surveillance. And like I told you, I just dress normal. So we go out on surveillance and the guy is supposed to be meeting a, the, another target in a restaurant. And the case agent gets on the radio and he says, is anybody wanting to go into the restaurant and see the, 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 the meat? Quiet over the radio, and so say I said, again. "What say that quiet, again?" Quiet over the radio. No, no, no. What was the phrase again? Does anybody want to go I to want... the restaurant and see the meat? To watch the meat, the interaction oh, between the targets. I was thinking, oh, you meat like eating? Come on, Morgan. The meat, the transaction. The meat. That's, that's what I. <laughs> oh, that was good. I wants to go watch. I, I thought that was code for like, go spy on them in the bathroom or something, or hey, go check out the steak, you know? No, the meat. So, oh, please continue, Regina. It's going so, downhill quick. So um, so I said, I volunteer. And the case agent, he's, he was a, a, a novice. He says, you can't do it. You're a girl. I was like, dude, are you serious right now? Oh, I where's said, my brick? Where's my brick? I said, first of all, it's lunchtime and it'll be all good. Women can't go to lunch by themselves. It's, it's, you know, and he was like, oh yeah, go. He said, go ahead, Regina, go in. And so I go in and I position myself between, I sit at the table that's by the door, but where I can see them meeting. So I'm giving the guys play by play over my next tail as the meet is happening. And the meet, so when they start to break up, I said, okay, it looks like they're going to be breaking up. Um, Okay. And so the guys go outside the the restaurant and I make eye contact with the target as he's going out, but he just walks out. And then I said, okay, it looks like they're meeting out. One target's heading this way. And I said, oh, hold up. The other target's coming back into the restaurant. So this guy comes back to the restaurant, beelines for me. He hits on me. And I was just like, this cannot be like happening this is like so cool so he comes up to me and he basically hits on me he's like hey i was like hey <laughs> he was like oh, this now, wait a minute. is everybody hearing this over the next tell right now no because i put it down when he came i was okay. like he's coming back to me okay i gotta go so i put the phone down so it's on sitting on the the, the um table and he like says he asked me my name and it's so funny because 
I, I'm not going to say my undercover name, but and he's, I tell him what it is. I tell him my name, my undercover name, and he tells me his name and our names are like similar. Um, yeah, our names are similar anyway. So, um, when he, he tell, he says, well, can I have your number? I said, well, no, first he asked me what, I, what am I doing here? You know, how, you know, why am I here by myself or whatever? And I said, oh, I'm a realtor. And I said, I was just in the area. So I just stopped in. I, I said, I actually never even ate at this restaurant before, but it seemed like a cool place. So I just stopped in and came in and he said, oh, okay. He says, well, you're so, you're so beautiful. He said, can I have your number? And I said, well, I don't typically give my numbers to guys, but I said, I'll take yours. So he gives me his number. Mind you, we're up already on a on a title three on his phone. So I just have like confirmation that we're on the right phone. This is the guy, blah, blah, blah. So he gives it gives me the number and then he he leaves. He says, please call me. And I was like, okay, you know, whatever. Oh, you bet we're gonna be in contact, pal. Well, let me t- they let me tell you what happens. So <laughs> by the time we get back to the office, the guys have already superimposed my picture. And this guy's picture into a frame and put it on my desk. Like, like a heart like, picture or something? Yes. Like a picture, like a portrait of us together. And they put it in a frame. So I sit down at my desk and I'm like, what the heck? And I, we just bust out laughing, right? So this guy, and I said, okay, I, I told the case agent, I said, you need to let me call him so we can arrange a date. And he was like, no, Regina. I was like, seriously, are you kidding right now? I said, this would be prime because I can get, I said, guys love to brag to women. I said, I could probably get him to lay out everything that he's doing if y'all let me, but they would not budge. They, they said, we don't want to get you in a compromising position. I'm like, I wanted to do like they do in the movies. I wanted to go deep undercover with this guy, you know, like, no, I could do it. Let me, let me date him. Let me go, you know, places. It's like, no. So they never did that. Right. They missed the opportunity, even though I confirmed that this is the guy, this is the number he gave me, blah, blah, blah. So when fast forward to the takedown and I said, for the takedown, I said, when you bring this guy in, you got to let me come into the interview room. And they did. So I walk into the interview room where they have this guy that was hitting on me on the restaurant. And he says, no way. You? <laughs> and I said, yes. <laughs> we got you. So, and I mean, that was the look on his face was like, ah, uh, he didn't even put it together. Completely clueless. But that was that was my career with bad guys. They never suspected that I was the. Well, the easiest way is, like you said, all you got to do is sit down there and let these guys come hit on you. And it's like, hey, I don't give you my number, but I'll take yours. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what would have been funny is if he gave you a secondary number and you went, that's not your number. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure this is your number? <laughs> yeah. Hold on. But, but, Let me check it against the title three list that my I buddy know, right? wanted. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. But then let me tell you, now I'm going to tell you a story that based on that scenario, the guy started like, oh, Regina, we need you to try to meet this target. We need you to try to meet this target. So they put me one day, it was another group needed my help to kind of get the, uh, the number for a target that they couldn't get up on his phone, but they knew the target, but they needed his number. And so they put me in an undercover scenario. They put me in a Mercedes. At that time, I had never been in a Mercedes before. Didn't know how to work the Mercedes because as an undercover, you probably should evaluate what the equipment they're giving you. So they gave me a Mercedes. And so basically, I'm, I'm behind the scenes following the surveillance team as they follow this guy to some point where he can stop and I can kind of make a connection with him, right? 
He doesn't do that. He's like all over the place, but he's not stopping. Finally, he stops at a gas station and they're like, go in. And I'm like, a gas station? That is not going to be enough time. They're like, Regina, just go, go do it now. So I get out. First of all, I'm in a Mercedes. He pulls up to get gas. I don't even know what side of the tank the gas tank is on. So I pull up. Thank God I pulled up on the right side. So I, I pull up and he's on the other side of the pump for me. And I'm on this side of the pump and I'm like looking like, and so I reach, I tell him, I said, sir, can you help me? I said, this is my friend's car and I'm trying to put gas in it, but I don't know how to, the, how to get the, the thing to open. I'm like really acting like Dizzy that to get the pump that I really don't know how to open it. Though. <laughs> can you, can you help me figure out how? And he was like, so he comes over and he goes inside the car in this little latch and he gets it open. No, I think it was a pusher. He pushed it and it came, it came open. And I was like, Oh, thank you. I said, I'm new to LA. I was like, you know, what's your name? And he tells me his name. I give him my, my name. And I said, I'm new here. I said, I don't really know anybody. I said, um, would you be my friend? <laughs> basically, basically, that's what I said. I said, you know, won't you be my I, neighbor? I said, you know, basically I was trying to get him to befriend me. And he was like, you know, he said, you know, I'm married. So I really can't, I really can't, you know, I, I don't, wouldn't feel comfortable giving you my number or anything like that. Cause I'm literally asking for this guy's number. And he was like, no. And so he kind of like blows me off. And this guy is not handsome at all. And I'm thinking, how is this guy blowing me off? Are you kidding me right now? What is going on? I found Somebody- the one guy in LA who's faithful to his wife. Who would have known? Yeah. It was, it was, I was, I, I was like, okay, okay. Something in me is now crushed. Cause I can't even get this, this not attractive guy to give me his number. And so it's so funny. So I get back to the office afterwards and John Fernandez was the ASAC at the time for the group that called me to do the undercover. So he brings me into his office and he was like, Regina, you know, he was like very serious. Like I heard what, what happened and you know, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, but I'm going to give you this. So he hands me a piece of paper and I open it and his, his, his and it's his number. He's like, here's my number. Hoping they make you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and I just bust out laughing. I was like, I was like, if this cannot be real. So I go back to the case agent. I was like, what does this guy's wife look like? And he was like, they showed me a picture. I was like, duh, guys, he likes thick women. I'm not thick. You sent the wrong person in. I said, you needed to send somebody in that had some thickness on their body. I'm too skinny for him. That's why he wasn't checking for me because anybody else would have taken my number or given me their number or whatever. I have never heard anybody refer to a woman as thick. Thick. That means they had they had curves and meat on their bones. They was a Beyonce when I was uh-huh. a Barbie doll. <laughs> yeah. And he wasn't, he wasn't going for the Barbie doll. He wanted the Beyonce. Fernandez was was always a comedian. He's a good guy. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so I had to tell because sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But that was, I was, I was just, I was devastated. I was like, what do you mean? Now, did you say, once you're resting, you say, what do I have to do to get an A? What do I have to do to have you hit on me? (laughs) (laughs) No. I actually was not around by the time he was arrested. I was already shipped off to Barbados, but I, that was hilarious. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. <laughs> so, so how how long how long did you spend in Barbados? Barbados, I spent a little over or a little under. I think it was a little over because I got there in 2005. No, it was under. And I left there in November of two. I got there in April of 2005 and left for promotion in um, November 2009. 
What was it like living in Barbados? I, well, okay, let me start from the beginning. At first, I did not like it. Why? I, why? Because my boss was an idiot. Yeah, see, we need to talk about the CA story. That's why I brought you back, so. My boss was an idiot. But before I talk about my boss, I want to talk about the good agents that were in the office with me. Because I came from a situation where I, I was fighting coming, to, coming from the academy. I was in high alert mode. So everything for me was like, who's trying to do something bad to me? Who's not respecting me, right? And so I get to an office where the guys literally sat me down after some months of tolerating my foolishness, I guess sat me down and said, Regina, we know that you have had difficult times. They said, but you do not have to basically be so aggressive. We was like, they like, we know you can do investigations. We know that you're good at the job. Bring it down a notch. And I was like, what does that mean? I didn't. So basically they were telling me that I was coming across as a know-it-all. Um, I, how do I say, I didn't realize that I was being a butt until they sat me down. And I appreciated the fact that they did because they could have just been talking about behind my back and isolated me, but they didn't. They cared enough about me and my career because all of them were senior to me. They were all senior 13s. And they sat me down and just had real talk with me. Even the administrative assistant, she had got to the point where she almost couldn't stand me. And I was like, I thought I was so nice to people. And they were like, no, you can't, you came in here like, I'm the stuff. Don't, you just watch me. I'm not going to watch you. You need to watch what I'm doing, right? And that just, it kind of like, it was a gut check. It was a reality check. And so much so that once they had that conversation with me and I thanked them for it, I reached out to my, my old um, administrative assistant in, from LA because we were friends outside of work. Well, I was friends with a lot of people outside, but she was like my ride or die. We would go out together on the weekends and stuff like that. So I called her and I said, I need to know what you thought of me in LA. And she was like, what do you mean? And so I told her what they had said. And they, she said, Regina, she says, you have a good heart, but you were at times very like, just leave me alone and let me do what I need to do. I don't need you. I'm going to do what I need to do. Um, I'm going to you know, work hard. But I was just very defensive at times. And she said, and when, you, when, when I would get defensive with her, she would just leave me be. But I didn't even realize that I was coming across like that. So you mean kind of like you were good, you were on a team, but you weren't exactly good at being a teammate at that point. Not, not so much because I was a team player. It was just that I didn't, I didn't take stuff from people. If you like, for example, one of the, one of the agents jokingly one time said, who was working a case with me, we were meeting with um, IRS. And when the IRS agent came in, he said, oh, this is my Intel analyst. Oh, I read him a new because I'm like, excuse me, I went to the same DEA Academy. I have the same badge. I am not an analyst. He was just joking, but I took it over the top because you have just demeaned me in front of this IRS agent who's coming in to work with us when you tell him I'm the Intel analyst. So I was, I was, def- I was very defensive at times because of coming out of the Academy. Like I said, I felt like I needed to prove something. So basically they were telling me, you don't need to prove anything. We get it. We see it. You're good. You know? And so from that point on, I just had like a different perspective. I was like, okay, 
And I really felt relief because I could like, okay, breathe. I don't have to be the best of the best. But is, I mean, it's, it's that it's a not, good time when the job became more enjoyable for you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the sense of working with my coworkers, but not my boss. <laughs> well, we'll talk about in a second. But what you found was a way to work as hard as you were, but work, like, say, more harmoniously. You still wanted yeah. to work hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. I still wanted to work hard, but there was a, a matter of, of respecting other people's skill sets and knowledge and not because there, really there was only a few people that I would that I respected and I would listen to. I would listen to George Elliott. You know, I would listen, listen to Nick Brooks. I would listen to my supervisor. But another agent, any other agent, I was like, what you got? Like, you got nothing you can teach me. What, I mean, what are you exactly, going to do? Yeah. Exactly. So, and that's not, that's not good. But you know, but it's kind of like you said, it's kind of like a defense mechanism. It's kind of like, that's the way you had to be to get to where you were, right? And it was hard to figure out, how do I turn that off? And at some point, it's like you said, we said that your fish doesn't know it's in water. Until somebody tells you this, you don't know you're being that way. You think you're doing the right thing. You're doing the hard work. And exactly. The, and the challenge is you don't want to you 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 don't want to diminish their enthusiasm for the job and agents and you know or somebody. But at the same time, you have, it's like blowing up a balloon. We used to say it's like somebody blowing up a balloon. And I was the same way too. They said I'm all thrust, no vector. I'm like going and going and going. But it's like, but when you can figure out how to take your skill sets and your initiative and combine it though with working with the other people very effectively, that's when you start becoming a better agent. That's when you start, you know, in other yeah. words, when you start going towards management, that's going to serve you well. Cause if you, if you heard me earlier, like I would do a lot of stuff by myself. I would go and do address checks by myself, stand outside in front of the house, meet my targets randomly um, by myself, not meet them. But I like, if I'm standing out in front of their house, they come out, you know, yeah, I may yeah, have a little with. brief conversation. Um, you but. know, the cool thing about that in Barbados is that those agents, um, they didn't just ostracize you, which could happen very easily in our culture, that they had enough respect for you to sit down and tell you to your face and or, like you said, talk behind your back. So that's, you know, this might sound like a bad thing, but it, it actually sounds like an intervention. Is what it sounds it, like. it was. And I and I appreciate every bit of it. Because exactly. I, I was like, that that was a God thing because they literally could have been like, because I mean, you know, there's people in L.A. that groups were doing mutinies on because they just couldn't stand the person, but they wouldn't tell them. They'd be telling everybody else, but they're not telling the person that had they have the issue with. Well, yeah. you know, the other issue, too, is when you're in an office the size of Barbados, everybody counts. I mean, and I mean, not buddy, but like body. No, you have, every, I mean, exactly. You're absolutely right. LA, you can hide, you know, a big office like that had how many, how many people do you have in L.A.? Oh, I don't even know. It was a lot. <laughs> I know we least, uh, yeah. yeah. So out of a couple hundred, if one or two is kind of a problem, you kind of get. But but when you've got one out of five or one out of six, mm-hmm. to your point, it's a much bigger impact. And so, um, so well, let's talk about. Have we set the stage properly? Let's talk about the the. It's like Lord Voldemort, he who shall not be named, the country attaché. So yes. I want to hear this story. We've been teasing it. So come on, girl, give up the goods. So the country attaché. Um, he came on DEA as a journeyman, a journeyman. That means, um, my understanding is that he was like a local task force officer who transitioned to a DEA agent, but didn't have like a college degree. Yeah. Um, so that was his background. So I'm coming in. He's, he was close to retirement. He could have retired at any point in time. And he, he would do stuff in the office to, cause confusion with people because he was having 
a problem with one agent where they were going back and forth reporting each other to the Office of um, Professional Responsibility, which is equivalent of internal affairs for um, a police department. So they were going back and forth with these battles. And one day we were in a meeting and I passed the agent that he was having uh, issues with a note to, to tell him to remind him to talk about something in the meeting. Well, he saw that as me giving, basically being on his team. I'm like, but we're all on the same team. So from that point, now I have a target on my back. And when I got to, got to, um, to Barbados, I was eligible, um, to take the SAP because I was told, take it as soon as you're eligible. So when I got there, I was a year out of being after a year out from being a 13. And so I was qualified to go and take my SAP, even though because of how my time fell, I wouldn't be able to use the score to the following year if I got a score. So he brought me in to his office with the backup when I, when I let him basically let him know I wanted to go take my SAP. And he proceeded to tell me, Regina, he says, you're an aggressive agent. He says, you're moving up fast. Um, he says, but I don't think you should go take the SAP. And I'm like, and I'm, I'm going to say this because the, the, my boss was an African-American man and it hurt me that I'm like, why are you telling me not to take the SAP when everybody else that look like me, don't look like me have said, go take it as soon as you're eligible. If nothing else, just to see what it's like, you know, and if you do well, you have a score that never goes away. You can use it when you want to use it. And he's telling me, don't go and take it. And he's, he, I was like, but I don't understand. He says, Regina, what's going to happen if you go there and you make a good score? They're not going to be wondering, saying, oh, she's a good agent. They're going to be like, who does she sleep with to get there or to get that score? If I tell you I felt about this big in this man's office, and I, that's one of the moments I wanted to cry, but I didn't because I, because I'm one of those people that also cry when I get angry, <laughs> but I know not to do it, you know, around people. But I was just so, hurt that this man was telling me not to go and take this test because people were going to get the impression that I slept with somebody to get the score. And I was just like, you got to be kidding. And his backup was in here in the room as if he thought this was okay. What he was, this conversation he was having with me. Holy cow. And so I come out of this meeting and I had already done my homework as far as who would be evaluating me or who was eligible. And because I hadn't been there for 90 days, technically he was not my, he would not be my reviewing supervisor. And so I reached out to my previous supervisor who was Bill Bogner, who I also, that's my boy right there. Bill Bogner was my supervisor. Currently the SAC of Los Angeles. So, yes, currently the SAC of Los Angeles. So what you're saying is this all occurred within your first 90 days of showing up in Barbados. Correct. And because it was within that first 90 days, this waste of uh, space was not officially your supervisor until that 90 days or your reviewer until that 90 days was over. Correct. Correct. So I reached out to, to Bill and asked him if he would be, he would be my reviewer. And he said, absolutely. So, um, my, um, my current, um, supervisor, the CA basically told me, well, I still have first right of refusal. And he says, and I'm not going to give you all fives. And I was like, okay, this is, this is interesting. What's going to happen? And so, like I say, I get there in April, November, I go home to California. 
which that's my home that I left. So I go back there and I'm with my, um, my pastor and his wife, cause I had a really good church there and I'm sad. I had got to the point where literally I'm not a drinker, but I was literally going home every night and taking like a shot of rum just to be able to calm my nerves and go to sleep. That's how stressful the office had become. And it wasn't the people in the office. It was the supervisor. He was just, just, he was just evil. He would do stuff. Like for example, um, I was responsible for the Island of Grenada um, and interacting with the counterparts there. And he brought me in with his backup again. And he told me, go and take, um, take, go make a payment to our counterparts. So I said, okay. He says, whatever you do, don't give the money to the landlord because we had an undercover house and there was a landlord that would, the, the counterparts would pay the money to for the house. And I understood all of that. And, but usually when you go to make any type of payments, you have some, another agent to go with you. But my agent, the agent that was my partner in Grenada was the guy that he was having issues with. So he's sending me there by myself. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So I go to Grenada. I meet with the counterparts. I give them the, the money. I have them sign the documents that they have to sign. And from that point, they start to like, we're finished with that business. So we're just walking around the, the building and he's introducing me to people and stuff. And he introduces me to this random man. When I, when I meet him, he just, just says this, he just tells me his name, but I see him pass the envelope to this guy. So I was like, hmm, that's interesting, but it doesn't register with me who this guy is. And I didn't give him the envelope. The captain gave him the envelope or the superintendent. And so that's done. I go back to Barbados. My boss calls me into the office with his backup. And he says, I thought I told you not to give the money to the landlord. I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't give the money to the landlord. He was like, yes, you did. I said, no, I didn't. I said, here's my, my 103. What are you talking about? I gave it to the, to the counterparts. He was like, well, I just want to let you know I can spend it however I want to spend it. And you did what I told you not to do. I was Holy like, okay, cow. this is not good because you're basically telling me that you will lie on me if you want to. What's a, and, you know, what's a 103? That's a, a document that um, info, um, confidential sources sign when we give them money to make buys or for to pay them for their service. Right. And so you've got so you got that. Let me ask you, let's stop here for just a second. Um, and maybe you'll figure it out later. Why is this guy on your case? Was it that you were more successful than him and he didn't want somebody else who looked like him to be more successful? He couldn't take a woman out doing a man. I, I just don't get why this guy was not on on, you know, on team uh, Gina as opposed to on the opposing team. And I'm going to tell you that just now. And let me guess. Let me guess. Did it have anything to do? You make the comment about you slept your way. You know, the people who think you slept with somebody. Was that part of his intention? Uh, I don't know. But one thing he did start doing, like on the weekends, he would call me. He would say, he, and I only let him do it twice. And after that, I shut it down. He called me on the weekend and he said, Regina, I need you to come to such and such location because we have some counterparts here and we need to have a meet with them and kind of, you know, entertain them or whatever. I said, okay, I go. I go to the location and at the location are some of his old friends from the States here on vacation. And what do you want me here for? These are not counterparts. Arm this candy? Not, That's what he thinks you're going to be? Exactly. So I was like, okay, I'm out. So I leave. He does it again the second time. And the third time I tell him, I said, sir, don't call me ever again 
for this type of, this is not liaison work. And I don't know what you thought I was here for, but this ain't it. Right. And so I just cut off really all ties with him, stopped talking to him. But this is the thing. So I had a friend, another female agent whose husband was a task force officer, but they were like friends, like friend friends. And so my friend came down to visit me in Barbados, her and her husband. So they were staying at my house and they wanted to, to meet with him or to hang out with him. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't want this man in my house, but okay. So, cause they were there and I was just kind of like milling around while they were talking to him. Well, he had, he got drunk <laughs> at my house with his friend from the States. This was my, my friend's husband. And he starts to explain or tell them why I'm here. <laughs> I don't even realize, know if he remembers telling them this, but he says, Oh Yeah. I, I got Regina down here, not because she's this good agent. I got her down here because I need to show her something from when she ran off her mouth at that um, the NABNA conference. The NABNA conference is the National Association of Black Narcotics Agents. We had a conference. And what had happened was I was there. I was like probably like two or two or three years on the job. And he was at the conference. And because he's, he was eligible for retirement, he was talking to the, the person that was speaking. They were talking about something about retirement and stuff and financial planning for your future as agents and stuff like that. And he was asking questions. And I, because I'm, I'm young and I'm stupid sometimes, so I lean over to my friend and I ask her, I said, oh, I wish he would stop asking questions so some of the young agents can ask questions. I didn't realize that was him, the man that I'm referring to. So he proceeds to tell them, yeah, I'm yeah, because when we were at that NAMNA conference, she wanted me to shut up so that young agents could ask questions. I did not realize that was him. So he basically brought me there because he was going to teach me my place. And I was like, wow, okay, this is what it is. So I go home. I go home in November for for um, Thanksgiving. I'm with my pastors. And I'm like, just now I'm like, I know I'm done because I basically told this man, be quiet. <laughs> To my friend, which he overheard. I didn't know he heard me. And he has it out for me. He's told me he's already said he demonstrated he's can he'll lie on me and he's not gonna give me all fours if he's the person that decides to to rate my package. So I my pastor asked me, you know, what's going on? Do you like Barbados? And I was like, I I don't like it because at that point I I didn't have community there. I didn't have any friends outside of work and all the agents were married and you can only in my mind, I didn't want to intrude on their lives because wives will only let you be around their husbands and their families for so long. It's like, why is she here again? So I was really feeling like very, very lonely. And I already told you about me having to, to drink the shots to relax and go to sleep. And so I told my pastors all that and they were like, well, let's just pray about it. And I was like, okay. So they prayed, you know, for, I just wanted relief. I wanted it to be a, have a good office. And that was it. And then later on in the afternoon, I like, let me check my phone to see if everything is okay. And so I checked my work phone. I had tons of message. Call, call us. The agent's telling me to call them, call them, call them. So I called one of the agents in the office and he says, Regina, are you sitting? I said, yeah, what's up? And he was like, he told me the person is dead. I was like, <laughs> I said, the country attache, this guy. He's dead. I said, what do you mean he's dead? He said, well, he had a heart attack. He said he was about to um, go and change to go golfing. And he went upstairs and he didn't come down. So when his wife went up, he had had a heart attack and he was dead. 
And I was like, okay. I was like, I didn't know what to do with that because I didn't ask God to kill the man. I just wanted relief. But that was what happened. And so the agent proceeds to tell me, you know, that the sack has cleared. If you want to go to the funeral or whatever, you can go from California to where he was going to, where he lived in the States with his family because his family was not in the country with him. And I was just like, I did not, I didn't know how to take it because I didn't know his disposition. I didn't know if he was a believer. I was like, is this somebody that's going to hell? I don't know. So I was like all messed up in my head. But at the end of the day, I was, I was awful grateful because I knew that that would be that his presence and the things that he brought into the office would be done with. And so when I went back, um, I was, we had a, we had a good group. We had a good office and his backup became the, the, the acting CA and he honored everything. He, you know, I got my packet done. Bogner signed off on it. They co they co signed off on it for me to go take my sap. And I went and took my sap. Um, and after that, everything else just fell into place. I developed community there, got a, met a good group of girlfriends and found a good church and everything from there was golden. I met my husband there, um, and did some really good cases there. <laughs> so. I mean, what a beautiful place to be living. Yeah. He says he's my souvenir. <laughs> 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 so what was where's your husband from? My husband's from Barbados. He's Barbadian. And how did you meet? Did he hit on you and ask you for your number? <laughs> and no. did you give him your number this time? Well, we actually met in church and um he didn't initially ask for my number. He actually didn't ask for my number at all because what happened was we Oh, wait we a minute. To- Are you kidding me? This guy's it's like, do you know who I am? Somebody turned me down once, only once, and they went to jail, pal. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it, it wasn't like that because all all they pretty much knew from my church. Well, my pastor knew what I did for. Um, they just knew that I was a part of the embassy. I was attached to the embassy, um, and I would tell people I worked for the IRS. Once I tell them that, they were like, "No more questions." <laughs> a small nonprofit organization. <laughs> um, and so. Um, we, we end up dating because of our pastor at our, at our church, we had a whole bunch of like 20 year old to like early 30 year old singles at our church. And our pastor was like, Ooh, we need to have some organized activities because we don't want nobody to get in trouble. (laughs) Did you have to fill out, did you have to fill out or disclose anything to DEA that you were dating a foreign national? Does any of that comes up? Yeah, I did. I did have to do that. Once we, once we decided that we were going to actually date, um, yeah, we did. We had to, I had to notify them. And when did you let him know you weren't with the IRS, but the DEA? Right after he told me he wanted to, um, oh, well, so when we, so when we went to, to lunch, when our pastor set up this group, it was like a group of six of us. And so we went to have a planning meeting on how the singles ministry was going to look. And I basically told the group who I was, what I did. And I told them, I said, to be honest, I, I'm not one of those that's looking for marriage because I'm going to work my job go see the world. And when I retire, I'll adopt some kids. That was going to be my life. There was no husband in that scenario. And so my current, my husband basically says, well, let's pray for you. I'm like, okay. So they pray for me. 
And I didn't know at the time, but he said, as soon as he finished praying for me, he said, he said he heard God say, and she's your wife. Yeah. Which is funny because my husband wasn't a big fan of American women. He wanted nothing to do with American women because all he could tell about American black women is they neck workers, back talkers, and <laughs> he didn't want nothing to do with and that. And a whole bunch of attitude. And a whole bunch of attitude. <laughs> and he didn't want anything to do with that. But he he listened. And so that night I went home. And because we had all signed our name and number on a, the roster for the group, he had my number. So he called me. And we talked on the phone for about three hours. It was crazy. And it was so bad that it was like, two o'clock in the morning. I was like, I'm, I'm flying out because I was going to be going on home leave for two weeks in the States. And I was like, I got to go to sleep because I got to catch a plane <laughs> in a little bit. And so I went to sleep. And so we were basically emailing because it wasn't instant messaging back then. We were basically AOLing, emailing each other um, every day that I was gone. And so I would go out and be about during the daytime and I'd try to get back and see what email he left for me. And we, we, we just communicated like that. It was just so easy, our conversation and our emails and stuff. And then when I got back to Barbados, he asked me, um, he said he wanted to court me, which was court me. That's like a term my grandmother would use. Like, what are you talking about? He says, I want to, I want to get to know you to see if you can be my wife. And that's, that's how it all started. <laughs> so wow. how long did the courting last before you uh, consummated the deal? Well, so we started, we dated a first because we dated for about six months and I was really afraid of relationship because in my family, I hadn't seen marriages work and I didn't know if I wanted to be married. I was afraid, but I knew that he was a blessing from God because he honored me. And I say that because God told me in my early twenties that the man for me would honor me. And he was that man who was honoring me. He wasn't trying to do to do <laughs> and didn't do to do until we got married, but he was really honoring me. And when I realized that he's the one that's, that God has sent for me, I freaked out. I was like, cause I didn't think I deserved him. I didn't think I was lovable like that. Um, and I was very set in my ways. I was a headstrong woman. And it really, when I, when I realized that I really loved him, really liked him, he was in my house he was sitting in my favorite chair and he was turning my, using my remote control and turning the TV. Before that, anytime a guy would come to my house, dude, get out of my chair, sit on the couch and don't you dare turn my television. That's, what I'm saying. That's my channel. Get, leave it alone. But he was doing it and it didn't bother me. And I was like, wow, I really like this guy. This is different. We, but we broke up cause I started doing the fool because I, I was just afraid and we broke up. God, I felt like God told me to break up, which I know he did, because if I would have continued on the path of my craziness and confirming that black American women are crazy, <laughs> he would have probably been damaged because I was doing all kind of crazy stuff. I would literally like, um, if we had a cup and the cup was purple, literally purple. And he said, Regina, that cup's purple. I was like, no, it's not. That cup, that cup is red. Like what, you know, I was just picking fights for no reason because I just wanted him to break up with me, but he wasn't going to do it because he heard in his head, this is my wife. And I am like freaking out because I'm seeing that this is my husband, but I don't know if I'm ready for that, 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 that. And so we broke up and we were broke up for a year, still working the singles ministry and doing everything in that arena. And then 
one night I was at my church at Bible study on a Friday night. Um, and God gave me a word for our church and I told my pastor what it was. And he was like, I want you to share it. So I shared it. And afterwards he came back to me and he says, Regina, I feel like you have a prophetic anointing on your life. And he says, I want to help you cultivate that, but I need you to go back and mend that relationship with, um, with Brian. And I was like, mend it. What's wrong with it? We're engaged in single ministry. We're doing fine. What, what do I, so, so I did. So I leave out of the church and I call Brian on a Friday night as if he had nothing going on in his life. <laughs> I, I was kind of arrogant. God had to humble me. And so I call him and I said, pastor said, we need to talk. And he was like, okay. So we scheduled to meet the following day. And as, um, we, I was planning to, to meet with him. I'm one of those people, if I go into a meeting, I'm going in with notes. So I started writing notes about all the things that he did wrong with our relationship. And I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm writing. And as I start to write, the letter starts to be a letter about me complaining about him to a letter from God to me telling me, Regina, every wall that you put up to protect yourself, it wasn't protecting you. It was just keeping out the person I wanted you to have, the person I wanted you to spend your life with. He was like, just let Brian love you. And I'm just like, okay, this is weird. What am I supposed to do with this? I'm and no longer he, in control. How can that be? I've got to be the one in charge. Yeah. Exactly. And he said, share it with him. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. And so he gets to my house and I tell him, just like I just told you guys, I said, I was writing this letter complaining about you. And this is how it turned out. And God told me to tell you. So I just read the letter to him and he just sat there when I finished and he said, okay. He said, I don't know if I'm ready to date you again, but we'll just see what happens. And from there, that day we started back dating and yeah, that was probably around April and in, um, no, it was probably in June because in November he proposed to me on my birthday and the following year, June, we got married. How many years has that been now? 14 years. All right. And he softened me. He's the reason I'm soft. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I can think of a lot of adjectives to describe you, Regina. That's not one of them. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't go there. I would would just say, I'd just say. I'm uh, soft, sweet, and patient now. (laughs) Let me just say, I I would go through a door with you. How about that? Oh, yes. When I need it, yes. But what I learned is, and I tell my um, different females and stuff that I mentor, I tell them I had to learn how to come home put my gun to the side and put on my tiara and my high heel shoes and let him be the head of our house. That's very cool. Cool story. Well, but you, you know, I didn't know about the tiara, but definitely the high heel shoes. Oh, you we know about the tiara. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm the queen, so I have to have my tiara. <laughs> That's it. Hey, and wow. this this episode's been interesting because it's not been so much about the cases you work because you've done great work, right? Uh, what it's really been amazing is to watch your journey through all of this and everything that you overcame, regardless mm-hmm. of the obstacles that were thrown at you. You know, to get, but you you said something, and we talked about it on a real quick break. But you said, yeah, it, it's about. I mean, you did a lot of good work, but you reached a point, right, where um, you decided it was time to part ways. Yeah, um, I. Well, wait, I have, wait, before you go down that road, um, where did you go from Barbados? Because you might recognize somebody's name here, Morgan. Yes, I. Um, I got. I got. Took oh, the that's sap. right. I had that note yeah. here. 
I took the SAP and I had a score and I was being looked at for a job in Las Vegas, LA, and Puerto, Puerto Rico. Rico. And Javier Pena, who was already my SAC because I was in Barbados, which is under the Caribbean division, he reached out to me. He says, Regina, these other officers want you, but I want you too. He says, where do you want to go? And I said, because my, my husband had already did the pros and cons in case we got the call. And so we said, we want to go to Puerto Rico. And he was like, done deal. And he promoted me and I went there as a supervisor. And that, so that was your group soup, your 14, right? That was my 14. My first job was in Puerto Rico. When I first got there, I was over the special support unit. And that unit is, is it's like an administrative unit, which is over training and CS management, witness protection, all of that kind of administrative training, recruiting. And I did that for eight months because I asked my ASAC, I said, I, I want an enforcement group. <laughs> I don't want to stay an admin too long. I need an enforcement group. And so the first enforcement group I had there was the um, Haida um, Airport Group. So I was over at the airport group and doing some phenomenal stuff over there. That that group, when I worked over there, that was the first time that the airport group actually had a title three out of the airport group. Very cool. Um, and we did some very neat stuff in the airport that I can't talk about online. But we we were working so good with the port authorities and with TSA there that we were doing stuff that was just yeah we got a bad lot of bad actors out of that airport. <laughs> Nice. Very nice. We had we had cases that made national news coming out of that our group. Wow. And such a small world, because this is something you don't know. Uh, but when I was doing work on Plan Columbia, that was Javier's uh second time in Colombia and he was working out of the embassy. We we literally probably walked by each other and didn't know it. So I was down yeah, so you know, back so, like, again, it's one of those things, small world, if we all knew where we had been, you would realize sometimes, too, that we're within 10 feet of each other, you know, mm-hmm. 20 feet of each other and didn't know it, right? Past each other in the hall. Yeah, and he was he was an excellent boss. I, I, I love him. He, he was so funny. He, would, he, he gave you three-minute meetings. Literally, if I was walking in the hall and he would see me, he's like, Regina, come, tell me what's going on in your group. So I would come in and he would, it would be like clockwork. I started to track it. He would start talking. He would let you start talking. When three minutes hit, he would stand up. That means the meeting's over. But three minutes is all he would give you. But he gave you three minutes. <laughs> really? I loved it. And I had, I actually had to take that because for me, I would find myself having like these really long meetings. And I'm like, I need to be able to have short meetings. And so I would start standing up to let my people know the meeting is over. We cannot continue. I'll you know why Javier had three minute meetings? Because he had a date. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. One thing, one thing he believed in is team building. We always had something team building going on. I loved it. I loved it. He's into that, and that was that was fantastic. Everybody, anybody I've ever spoken to anywhere has never said a bad word about him as a boss. And I, I and he was there as, as he was retiring because I was there when he retired, and I was I was helping him package his his um, Pablo Escobar PowerPoint because he he didn't know how to put it together to be able to take it on a CD somewhere. So I helped him do that. Yeah. How about that? And that still continues to this day when we were recording stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, we're in our eighth year, eighth year of our worldwide tour talking about that topic. Boy, and like we we're talking about, talk about a shelf life. You know, most things it's like, but people continue to be fascinated by it. There's nobody more surprised than he and I. 
Yeah. And well, as long as the checks keep clearing the bank, that's okay with you, right? That's the right. Goal, the, goal is, the goal is for the Murphys not to eat cat food in retirement. So we're, I was we're just down at your house, Murph. If you ever thought about eating cat food in retirement, you shouldn't have built that pool, that hot tub, and the lanai out back. Uh, Look, love do, it. I, do I have a vacation spot? Yes, ma'am. Anytime. Uh, it's anytime. great. I was there. By. I'm telling you, great location and not too far from the airport. Just a real nice, nice neighborhood. Very so I can, I can just spend a night when we're going to catch a cruise out? Sure. We're uh, we're actually uh, going with some of our children and grandchildren this coming Christmas on a Disney wish cruise. Nice. I, I'm a cruiser. My husband and I, we love cruising. I'm, we're so glad it's opening and back because COVID messed us up because we used to do at least once one a year. Oh, nice. Yeah, we're only an hour from the Cape Canaveral launch site over there from the docks. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. So let's let's talk about that then. Uh, like I said, that was a good catch, Murph, because I had the note. I forgot to look at it. Um, no problem, JP. But um, you parted ways. So I mean, wh- why did your why did you bring your career to an end? Um, well, I became a a, 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 a GS fifteen, and I, my first fifteen position was at headquarters, and I was under the at the end of the time Office of Global Enforcement, and I was responsible for. Uh, for two weeks for the Mexico and um, South America, I mean, excuse me, Mexico, Central America and Canada for two weeks before they realized, well, we probably should have put her in a, the Latin America and Caribbean since that's my background and I'm, all of my connections are there. So I went over as the um, deputy section chief first and then probably about, I want to say about eight, eight or nine months. I transitioned to the actual section chief where I was in charge of the um, staff coordinators, which were GS-14s, and we were responsible for coordinate um, international uh, operations in those areas. So I did that, and I I continued to want to grow and to – I wanted to see behind the curtain. The the one thing they say about headquarters, I thought I was going to avoid headquarters because I did my – my 14 headquarters time at SOD, but I was the first person to hold the SOD position, but in San Juan, Puerto Rico, which they, they kind of made that position for me because they wanted me to be in that position. Um, and so I was actually still stationed in Puerto Rico, but I was under special operations division and Mary Pico, I give her all the kudos too, because this woman, she so took me under her umbrella and made sure I was in the right room to meet the right people, to, to just propel my career. Um, she, even though I was in Puerto Rico, she made me, she was like, come into the office, at least come to the, to the, to the office at least once a month so that they don't lose sight of you. And I was like talking to everybody and people were like, who is this girl in Puerto Rico that's calling us, you know, for coordination. Cause I was seeing all kinds of connections and stuff. And, and I was very all over the place with, putting connections together. And I appreciated um, Marie Pico for encouraging me in that, um, in developing cases for the, um, for the field. She's a very hardworking lady. Yeah, she is. I mean, I had a whole lot of respect for her. If I tell you, she, yeah, she, like I say, she took me under her arm, under her wing. And, um, and from there, like I say, I got the 15 promotion and I know I got it because she put me in the room with the person who called me and said, "This these jobs are coming open. You apply for all of them because you're going to get one of them. You just apply for all of them. And so I did. And I got the the, the deputy section chief job first and then ultimately the section chief. But I like it. When you moved to headquarters, where'd you live? 
I lived in Alexandria um, because I been in LA, been in Puerto Rico, been in Barbados. I was sick of traffic. <laughs> yeah, I could oh, yeah. not do the long drive. And so me and my husband, we, we just bit the bullet and we bought a very expensive home to be close to the office um, in Alexandria. And all it didn't, I just went up route one and I was at my house in 15 minutes. Oh, that's a so, great, I mean, that's a great drive too. When you go South, like you're headed towards Richmond, mm-hmm. one yep. is a great drive through the country yep. and everything. Yeah. So I was right there. That's where we were. And then um, by fluke, I, I said, I wanted to, like I say, see behind the curtain and I wanted to be an executive assistant. And I was trying to be the executive assistant for my boss, the person that was my boss when I was um, a staff coordinator. But for some reason, he just, he wouldn't select me. And it was weird because I was really killing it as far as in relation to his rest of his section chiefs who would often call on me to, how do we do this? Or what do we do this? Or how do you think we should strategize with this? But he would not, he didn't want me to be the person that was walking around with him all the time and in his business. Cause that an executive assistant is basically in your boss's business. Um, so he didn't select me. So I had the, the, the privilege of working on our SAP behind the scenes in the, the creation of our SAP. And I, in this, this meeting, strategic meeting, I met Tim Jennings. Good man. I didn't know him before. I didn't know him before then. He didn't know me, but we were in this this week long section to develop the test that we just kind of jailed. We had good conversations. Input was good, but I didn't know that he was considering me. I didn't even know where his position was or what he was really doing um, in relation to DEA. So it comes to turn out that he was actually in transition because he was going to be coming into the building, going under um, as the um, the oh my gosh. <laughs> as the deputy chief for operations management. And I, um, and then we also went to, that was the first time I I met him. Then we went to the Notre Dame leadership school together. We were in the same class and we, he was in a different group, but my group, we, we had to do presentations and stuff. So he further got to, to see who I was as a leader and my thoughts and how I felt about leadership. What year was that? This was when when I transitioned just into to be to connect. This would have been two thousand and eight, I did pretty. I think the exact same course with Notre Dame. Um, I yeah. did it in two thousand eleven. No, I was in two thousand. Except you, you completed it successfully. He didn't. I can, <laughs> I, you want to see my transcript, pal? <laughs> I got so, the transcript right here. So we, so he, he reaches out to me when he says, when he found, gets the word that he's actually going to go to operations management. And he says, he basically says, can you come meet with me? I was like, okay. So I go and meet with him and he proceeds to tell me that he, he's considering me to be his executive assistant. I was like, okay. And I'm like inside, like all excited, like this is happening, Lord, this is about divine setup. And he says, you know, he asked me about myself and what my expectation. I asked him, tell him everything. And then I asked him, I said, so do you want a yes person? I said, because if you want a yes person, I'm not going to be that person. I said, because I'm always going to be honest about situations. I'm going to, if I, if there's a problem, I'll bring it to you, but I also will come with solutions because I don't want to just be the deliverer of a bad information. I want I mean bad, um, problems. I want to be able to also bring you solutions. And I said, are you going to let me see behind the curtain? 
He was like, what? See behind? I was like, yeah, when you're not around or even when you are, are you going to be taking me into the meetings with you? Because that's the only way really I can always make sure I'm covering you because there's no situation that I'm not aware of and vice versa. And he said, well, of course. And I said, well, I'm your girl. When do we start? (laughs) And the rest is history, which is, that's good. But there was another deputy chief that was also recruiting me and I was going to take that job. But when Mr. Jennings came along, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to take that his position. So I had to go back to this other boss and say, I'm going to go over here. And this boss had the audacity to tell me, well, that's good. But if, if I don't get my number one pick, then you may not be able to go over there to that section. I'm like, are you serious? You're going to hijack my career for your good, not for what I want. I was like blown away. And if he's not on the career board, he doesn't have that authority to make that decision anyway. Exactly. You know, but it it just baffled me. But Mr. Jennings, he was like, no, don't worry about it. We're going to get it done. He went up to the chief of ops and it was like, it, it wasn't even an advertised thing. It was just like transfer. She's a 15. It's a 15 position. Just transfer. And it just happened. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and from there, it was like, I my eyes opened up to how the sauce is made. I saw the budget. Um, we strategized about hard to fill um, post and headquarters rotations. And I was on all these committees and going over to the state department. And it, it was just, it was, it was the best. I was like, I'm so glad I didn't bypass headquarters because it made me equipped to be an ASAC in the field. And I tell people now, I was like, I know nobody wants to go to headquarters, but if you really want to be a well-rounded leader, you need to go into the building. In addition to that, you make so many contacts that are going to be beneficial yes. for the people that work under your area of responsibility after that. That's the golden exactly. ticket of going to headquarters. Nobody yep. wants to go. Nobody well, wants you, to go. Yeah, you come out. If there's an issue with HR, oh, I know a person in HR, I'll call, you know. So, yeah. So, we need to get to the most important part of the interview now. It's how you ended up in the great state of Kansas. Yes. <laughs> well, after, after um, becoming um, Mr. Jennings' um, executive assistant, um, Bill Callahan, who we were actually in GSI school together, 14 GSI school Billy together. Billy Callahan. Good people. Um, yes. Yeah. He's so cool. So, he starts to recruit me to come to, at first, St. Louis. Um, and so he, he brings me down to St. or up over, <laughs> over look, I don't want Morgan to like correct me. So <laughs> <laughs> he brings me, he brings me out to, um, to St. Louis to do a presentation at a, um, girl, a girl's expo as a speaker, uh, um, a spotlight speaker. Um, to talk about leadership and basically tell them about my career and they let them know that all things are possible, basically. And he took me around, showed me St. Louis. And I was like, okay, St. Louis is good. And the job that in St. Louis that he, I think was looking at his ASAC didn't retire. He stayed. So that was no longer on the table. So he said, that's okay. He said, have you ever thought of Kansas? Cause that's even better. And I was like, uh, I didn't know anything about Kansas other than the wizard of Oz. I was like, is this oh, a country? Please. What is seriously? I did not know anything about Kansas. Did you have to get out your map and look where Kansas was? I knew where it was. I didn't know anything about Kansas. And so I started doing my homework, you know, looking at what's the makeup of the office, what's the, the drug trends, and and I was like, it looks like a nice place. Their their school system, even though I don't have kids, I looked at the school system. Their 
ranked like their kids or their school districts are like in the top 5% for the U.S. They have excellent schools and stuff. And I was just like, okay. Um, and so we came out for, to, for just a visit and my, my husband and I, we loved it. And we were like, we're in. And so the position came open and we applied and the rest is history. And it was the best decision coming here. I have had the opportunity and, and I'll just be transparent because I didn't know coming from Texas and being exposed to racism, I didn't know if Kansas was going to be the same type of atmosphere in some arenas, but I got here and if I, people in Kansas, I don't think they even realize how nice they are. Literally, you can go in the gas station convenience store and before you leave out of there you know everything about the person behind the counter and they know that means people they just talk to you they're just welcoming how can they help um we got here in in may of 2020 during covid and we knew all our neighbors during the first week that had never happened we've been like many places and we never knew our neighbors like that quick so much so they're like we're having a barbecue y'all want to come over i'm like it's covid but they're having a bar it's outside so we so we like and they just in, brought us into their their lives, and so we had community and work, and then then in church and our community, and we found a, a great church, and everything just fell into place. And it was just like, and I would go into meetings where I would be the only only, and the people just wanted to hear from DEA. They didn't care what I looked like. They was like, "What is DEA saying on this issue? What is DEA, DEA doing on this issue?" And I would just give it to them, give it to them, give it to them, and they just wanted to hear and start building relationships. Um, starting task forces that didn't exist before um, and talking to the media because I do give credit to our administrator because DEA has always kind of been a, a covert operation. So we didn't really talk a lot to the media, but th that door was open to talk to the media and to get out and talk to the community and talk to students. And yeah, and that's, I started to, to love that part of the job more than actually the work of the job. If that makes sense. When I would go to a school and kids would see me and be like, oh, you're an Asian, you know, and say, oh, I can do that too. And I tell them, but this was my difficulties. I couldn't read, but I didn't let that stop me. And I may, you may not have parents at home that are supporting you, but don't let that stop you, you know, and encouraging them. That's why I felt like I was getting more excitement and more, I was happy in that arena versus the ins and out because I'm like, signing papers, getting finger cramps and reading ops plans. And I'm just like, and trying to live through my GSs who are living through the agents, like what's going on? What are you going to be? How are you going to be on the street? You know? And, and, but it, it wasn't the same. It was like, I was, felt like I was being pulled more and more to the community. So I just started processing. I'm like, Lord, what are you, what are you saying to me? Is it time? Because when I became eligible to retire, it was like all these doors started to open for me to connect with the community and the more and more I connected, the more and more I wanted to be in a community. So before you punch out, hold on, we got to talk about a couple things uh, before you get there. Cause I want to talk about your visit to the great garden city and visiting the DEA. Look, that's a drive from, from Olathe yes, and, and Kansas. And, city. I, and, and even that, even that in itself, because I would literally, I made sure I went to all of my office regularly and the people in garden city would, was like shocked law enforcement out there and stuff. They were like, you came to visit, Garden City, I was like, uh, yeah, y'all are important to us. The partnership is important. So I was very intentional in making sure I went. I went to some towns that people in Kansas that are from Kansas, like the Overland Park and 
um, area, I was they didn't even know like, existed. Where? Yeah, they didn't know it existed. And meeting in all the sheriff's meetings and the police association meetings and going to these meetings, so they was like, "No, DA is here. We are. We are. We want to partner with you. We're not trying to take nobody's case. We're trying to come alongside and you say, how can we augment the things that you're doing? How can we help?" And they appreciated it, you know, because before no one had ever even. I think there was like a five or six person RA in Wichita, wasn't there? There's a, yeah, there's a, re- a resident office in Wichita. There's um, five agents out there and a whole bunch of task force officers because we've actually added them. The office is actually expanding out there. That's who we did a lot when I was a detective. That's where we r- worked with a lot of guys, Troy Derby and uh, Randy uh, Odell and guys like that back and back. You probably don't recognize those names, but they, Randy Odell was famously doing, no, he was ATF. I'm sorry. Troy Derby was DEA. Um, but yeah, no, we had great relations with uh, those folks. Good training, you know. Yeah, and they still continue. Like I say, it was, yeah, the the guys and girls that are out here, the agents and the task force officers, they're killing it. They're doing, they're doing. And just uh, let people know work. too. People think Kansas, you know, nice little state and stuff. There is a lot of drug trafficking. There's a lot of mm-hmm. movement through Kansas because you've got two major interstates that go through there. And Operation Pipeline, you know, uh, with Epic, um, Operation Pipeline is US 54 that comes up out of the Texas border, you know, up and through Kansas on Highway 54 there. Yep. And it's weird because I usually use this term mostly when I was foreign, but it's a transshipment state. Everything going north (laughs) from Mexico or from California, from Colorado, it all comes to Wichita. And inadvertently, stuff is getting left in Wichita. It's staging locations in Wichita, I mean, in um, Kansas. So, so yeah, they're not exempt. And it was weird when I first got here, it was when the fentanyl pills were first being um, seized. And at, at, at initially, we wasn't seeing them. And then all of a sudden, there it is. They're there. And people are overdosing. And it just, it just got crazy. Yep, until we had to get the word out there that don't take these yeah. pills. One, one pill can kill. <laughs> yes, exactly. So when when you and I had the pleasure of meeting last year, there were quite a few people calling you about, hey, don't retire yet. Well, you still got promotions. They wanted to move you up in the senior executive service ranks, correct? Yeah, that is true. Um, why, did, why did you turn down becoming, uh, you know, an appointee, a big shot, you know, uh, somebody who could really lead and do things? I mean, that's that's like the ultimate goal, right? You move up. If you're 15, well, I, you got to be an SESer. Yeah. Well, I, have, I've, I had a, a SES score. Since 2019 is when I got my my best qualified score, and I've had I had interviews with Udom. Um, I've had interviews um, with the current administrator, and I don't know. All I I don't know why I hadn't been selected, and every time I come out of an interview and the list comes out and my name's not on it, everybody's wondering what happened. And initially, because I wasn't familiar with the SES um, interviews, I wasn't even, um, I had to learn how to interview. And I, like I say, anytime I know there's a challenge, I'm going to work on the challenge. So I reached out to some, some, um, some of my mentors and people who are SESs to help, help me to be able to articulate what I need to articulate to answer the questions in interviews. And I had that. So I started doing some really good interviews, but I think, can I say this? I think I 
if you turn, sometimes if you turn down a job, there's no more job offers. And I turned down a job that was not a promotion, um, but somewhere that I, they wanted me to go. And to me, it was, it was, it was why, why do I have to take that route? Why do I have to settle? Um, and I wasn't really to do that because at this point in my time, in my life, I'm into retirement. I don't want to be creating new debt with buying houses and moving. And being uprooted and having to and move being again. uprooted and being moved again for not a promotion. This is a temporary in-between lateral job. No, I'm not doing that. And And so I said no. And I think from there, even though because there's a board that sends you to the administrator's interview, and, the, and I was clearly qualified, so I'm passing the board and getting the shortlisted to have the interviews. Once I got before the administrator, it was still nothing. And it and the 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 thing that really hurt me, and because I always said I never want to get to a point where I'm disgruntled, because I love DEA. DEA has afforded me to be able to see the world, to do great things, meet great people. But when you have a scenario. Where, like I said, I was the executive assistant of operations management. I've been all over the world, done all kinds of cases, brought initiatives to DEA that are still in existence. For example, the airport action team in, in um, Puerto Rico. When I was the GS there, I was trying to figure out who's the holder of all the information for airports. Who do who's tracking seizures? Who's who's tracking contacts with people at this airport that stopped at another? Nobody was tracking that. So I went to. So operations, um, domestic operations, and asked, are you guys doing it? They were not doing it. I went to SOD. Is anybody doing it? No. And so I went back to, to OD, and they said, you do it. So I started in Puerto Rico. I reached out to all of the, the divisions, their airports, for their, their airports, and said, are you guys willing to, to start this group? We're going to have monthly meetings. We're going to talk about what resources we have, what confidential sources we have in the airports and what we're seeing and how we can work together. If we have some dope going to New York and we don't want to stop it, we want you guys to go out and do surveillance. Will you guys be willing to do that? And if I tell you we started doing that, because before it's just like a random call, somebody saying, can you stop someone in the airport? Of course we can stop somebody, but we wanted to follow it. And we were able to do that under the AirTat. And that is still existing today. And it's not like in Puerto Rico anymore. It's at headquarters. But that started with, and it's, but it started with me. And so when I applied, I applied for Mr. Jennings' job. When he retired, he was like, Regina, it's a no-brainer. You should get this position. I applied and interviewed well. But again, this is after I interviewed for this position after turning down the other one. So I go into the interview and I, I, I sense body language, everything is different. So I'm like, okay, but I'm still going to, you know, give you the answers to your questions. And when I see the announcement come out and no disrespect to the lady that got it, because I actually was mentoring her and telling her, yeah, you need to do this. You need to do that. So I got it. But this young lady, she's been one division one division all her career. She came to headquarters and um, was promoted as um, under, uh, she was an executive assistant, which typically 
they say executive assistants should come from section chiefs, but she went from a 14 to an executive assistant, white female, to an executive assistant. Um, and then she gets the position, has no experience in OM, only been in one office her whole career, and she gets the job. And I'm like blown away. I'm like, how did that happen? And so I, I called her and I told her, I said, I'm not going to say her name, but I told her, I said, I'm, I'm really happy for you, but I'm, I'm telling you it, I'm hurt. Not because I said, I'm hurt because I don't understand it. I said, you, if, you know, if we put our resumes against each other, it's a no brainer. I sat in Mr. Jennings seat when he wasn't around, I was running the office. And sometimes when he was, he was like, Regina, you got this, you know? And I, but I was not good enough to actually sit in the seat, but they thought someone that had no experience whatsoever, who is actually struggling now. And I'm praying for her because I want her to do well, but she's struggling and it's, and it's, and it's sad. It's, I, I tell you what, when I, when I met you out there and, uh, and you and I never met before that I recall and uh, the hospitality that you showed me just, it brought back and our listeners have heard us talk about this before, the law enforcement culture, the brotherhood and the sisterhood that we have that continues till we all die. You know, you you took me out to lunch. That was good. Introduced me to the Kansas barbecue. But then at the office, you gave me your conference room. Now, I no longer have any security clearances. You know, I'm a has-been. I've been retired 10 years from DEA. Um, and just the fact that the way that you and your folks treated me told me that this is a well-run office. This is the people that they got their shit together. They know what they're doing. Uh, and I just want to say publicly here on, on Game of Crimes that I, you don't know how much I appreciate that. And I even talked to you at lunch after we had only been talking for an hour or two about coming on the show way back yeah. then. <laughs> well, Murph, the reason they didn't con consider you a security risk is they knew at your age they could tell you something and five minutes later you'd forget it. They weren't worried about <laughs> it. <laughs> Regina, Regina, who is this guy keeps interrupting me? What's his uh, name? I don't know his name. I don't know. He has great <laughs> hair, though. <laughs> and good skin, oh, too. Okay. And good skin. Skin. <laughs> Must be the Mary Kay. Uh, this, uh, I just love it that we've got you on here. And and, uh, and this episode is a little bit different than a lot of the interviews we do here. But And and our neighbors, I mean, our listeners, our regular listeners know, I love DEA, I bleed DEA, but we're not perfect. Well, we're far you, from perfect. But you know, what you've, what you've exposed is that, look, it's... It, We've always said, and I've always said, it's even when I was state and local, because, you know, there was always this thing between the feds and state and local, you know, and I, it's gotten so much better. But I said, it's never the agents. It's usually the agency. Right. We don't, we never had problems yeah, in the true. field, working people. Yeah. Nobody cared who put out the press release. Nobody cared who exactly. got credit. We all lived for the bus. We all lived for the yeah. thrill of making the arrest, closing the case, right? And so I don't think that's, but I think, you know, but to Merce's credit too, is that it's hard to go back and when it's even your own agency to say, hey, look, there's some things we did good and there's some things we didn't do so good. And this was an area where they didn't do so good in terms mm -hmm. of how they treated you. And it's pretty clear. It's like, you know, you turn down. And the other thing, too, is the position never should have been offered to you. This is just my opinion. It never should have been offered to you unless it was a setup to say they knew you were going to turn it down and, you know, and used it. Or on the other hand, it's like, why make somebody, why uproot somebody from their life and make them move for just a lateral? It's not going to improve your skill set. You've already well-rounded, right? So what's the purpose of doing it except for um, what I call, um, uh, it's an insidious form of punishment, but it's that under the radar to where they ask you to do something because they know you're going to turn it down. And then 
the culture is, well, hey, she turned this down. We can't promote her. That when we talked to Michelle Linhart, that was one of her challenges too. She was moving. She left stuff in boxes because she knew that she had to take promotions and take moves to be able to move up, you know, the ranks. And so uh, I just, I'm, I'm sorry that it happened to you, but you know what? What I will tell people to listen to this episode, especially this is one that every young girl ought to listen to, every young girl of color ought to listen to, every young boy ought to listen to, every young boy of color ought to listen to. In other words, everybody ought to listen to it. If you want a masterclass in how to not let this stuff stop you, mm-hmm. and instead, how do you overcome it? What's the mindset you need to have? But the biggest thing you've shown is you were willing to put in the time and make the sacrifice. You just didn't whine about it. You didn't use... Uh, I, I never heard you once say, oh, you know, um, I, I'm going to use my race as a way to, uh, to, to, I've I never heard you say that. You know what I said? You know what you did is you doubled down. You worked harder. You learned what, what you needed to do to get ahead. And I'll tell you, no matter what race, what color, what creed, whatever you are, if more people had your attitude, we'd have a lot, lot more people doing a lot better things, especially in this profession, you know, of law enforcement. So, I mean, you know, like Steve said, this is not a regular episode, but this, we're going to use this as a masterclass of how to overcome adversity. Speaking of that, because it leads into kind of like MTV, where are they now? So what are you doing now? So eventually you did, we know you punched out a DEA because we talked about it, right? But what, what was that decision and what are you doing now? You, you talked about community. What occupies your day other than spending four hours on the uh, podcast with it's me? It's been four hours? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. We talked a lot. Okay. How do y'all going to narrow this down? Oh, okay. Anyway, let me, let me not. We cut it in two. Part one comes out on Monday. Part two comes out on Thursday. We, we don't edit your stuff other than, you know, a hiccup or maybe a bathroom flush or something, but that's not in there. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, I, I finally just decided to, it was time. And like I say, I was getting, I was happier about being engaged in the community. So I um, pulled the plug at this December of last year, at the end of December. And what am I doing now? I am active in my church. My church just made my husband and I deacons. <laughs> so we got a lot. We're going there. I'm I'm still engaged in a lot of nonprofits uh, related to kids. Um, so I do like speaking engagements and I'm going to be doing, um, a camp, Girl Scout camp. Um, it's law enforcement and firefighters come together to do a camp. Uh, I'm, (laughs) I have, I'll be in Olathe school next week. Um, excuse me, not next week in March doing a panel with their students. And I'm just trying to make, give back, um, to the community as well as I go down to, um, it's called the spot, which is a. Uh, like a center that's open to Olathe um, high school and middle school students on Tuesdays. I go down there and hang out with them and they're getting to know me more now. Cause I was doing it at, while I was on the job volunteering there, but I can only come like it's on Tuesday. So if I had a meeting, I wasn't able to come. So now I'm on a more regular schedule and they're like more like opening in and bringing me into the fold. So, yeah. So, and, um, yeah, I'm just trying to stay active in the community and give back. My husband and I just closed on a, a duplex. So I'm also a landlord now um, of a, a property. So, yeah. And I, I feel like I want to just get into public speaking and encouraging people. I want to be able to go out and equip, empower, and encourage people that they can do anything. You spent how many years total in law enforcement? Um, 23 plus. Oh, total with Dallas? Oh, yeah. Um, 27 plus. 27. 27 years of your life serving the public. 
And now it's time to kick back and enjoy life. And let's see, I think I just heard you're still serving the public. I, yeah. It, it, yeah. That's it all I know how to never. do. Never, never stop. Well, you know what I like to say is just because our just because we retire does not mean that our oaths ever expire. The only thing that's expired in Murphy's house is the milk. I've seen it because he doesn't get up off the couch. And uh, oh, no, the, <laughs> no, last night the chicken salad was expired. Chicken salad was expired. Oh, oh yeah, was, no! Yeah. Hey, Gina, Roro, my girl, I want you to tell Murph what do you think of the Kansas Highway Patrol and the state troopers in Kansas. I love them. I love nanny, them. nanny, boo, boo, Murph, nanny, if nanny, boo, boo. If I tell you, so. I wrote our guys up for the, cause we have a um, highway interdiction group. The Kansas highway, the interdiction group is a task force group for us with us. And I wrote them up last year for the Haida award and they got it not just for local. They got the national Haida award for interdiction. Oh, nice. They nice. are, if I tell you, they kill it. They will travel. They'll make a control delivery happen. If they'll call me and I'll be like, we own it. Call the next division. Let's make it happen. They will say no to nothing and they will get in their cars and they will take that dope and we will get those bad guys arrested. And, and I mean, they became so much more progressive once they got rid of Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, let me tell you something. Do you know who was on the original pilot team for the Kansas Highway Patrol interdiction team? You know who was one of the four pilot troopers that started the program? It had to be you if you're mentioning it. Fucking yeah. A. Mr. Good hair and good skin. <laughs> and, and I looked good in a uniform. That Sam Brown, the campaign uh-huh. hat. I actually spoke. Um, I came in in 2020 and 2021. 2021, 2020. I, my years and stuff are running together. But to, I, I spoke at the their graduation, their um, cadet graduation in 2021. Wow. Yes. So Chris, wow, that's pretty cool. a buddy of mine, a buddy of mine, Chris Bauer is in charge of the H- patrol Academy. So you would have uh-huh. run into Chris Bauer and you probably ran into Herman Jones, the Colonel. Yes. I, yes, yes. So let me yes, tell you a yes. quick story about Herman Jones back when Herman was a trooper. Uh huh. He, as you talk about being interviewed. So Her- Herman, you know, was being interviewed and they just had a big chase, big thing go down and Herman's sitting there. In being interviewed by the local news station uh, down there in Wichita, because that's where he started off as a road trooper. And the guy they arrested slipped his cuffs, hopped behind the wheel of Herman's car, and on live TV took off in his patrol car. Are you serious? <laughs> what? Oh. Yep. oh, my. Well, you know he's getting ready to retire. July. So, yep. Yeah. So I, I might have to tell that story if I get invited to his retirement. Do not he tell him oh, who it came great. from. I still, I still have family in Kansas. I want to be able to travel back. Just tell him, hey, Herman, is it true? You've lost a lot of things over the years. Not weight, but uh, a car. <laughs> Look, he came. He came to my. He came to my retirement. I'm going to show you. Not as you, because I have like not. I have like one. I know you guys can't see it, but I have one. Oh, I two, see that. Two certificates from them for nice. appreciation for Look our. Look at that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Awesome. So. Look, and if you can see behind me, you see uh-huh. what's on the wall there. Yep, I see it. <laughs> that is that is there was a guy that takes the trooper badges, so it's my radio number on there, 150, and actually makes a 3D kind of in wood with the badge and stuff. So that's like a that's wood. It's about an inch and a half thick, and he's carved it out and painted it. And it's nice. just beautiful. So yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Uh-huh. Yeah. There you go, Murph. Uh-huh. I, I need I need one of those, um, Steve, the racks though. I have all these coins and nowhere to display them. I was thinking about giving them away. I bought these from the um, DEA, uh, DEA Museum. 
Oh, these three on the wall. Gotcha, and then I've got yeah. one. There's one that's uh, an American flag by made by Flags of Valor, uh-huh. which I'm a big fan of them. I've got three of their flags, wooden flags, and it's got the thin blue line. Yeah, it's the one smaller. you have up there. I have that one. It's on the other side of my my yeah, shelf here. One. KHP got me wall. that. KHP got me that. So I have the exact same one. And they have scriptures written on it on it that they put on there. And for Murph, me. I don't want to hear you talk smack about troopers again. Did you hear what she just said? I'm going to replay this. Every time you say that, I'm going to have that on an audio clip that I replay. I love the Kansas Highway Patrol and their troopers. Well, I understand that once you were gone. And I, I'm going to give out a shout out to um, Doug Carr. Doug Carr Doug? is the lieutenant over. Yes. Doug that's was a police th- officer with me in Garden City, Kansas. His son just went through, graduated from DEA. Not not just graduated. Derek graduated number one. So he came back. He's wow. Here. And for our listeners, when you graduate number one in the DEA Academy, you get to pick your post of preference. You get to pick yes. where you go. Yes. What a small world. So Doug was a little old street officer when I was yes. there in Garden City. Yep. So if you want his number, I got it because that Doug, me and Doug had some really good conversations. Everybody gives you their number. It's obvious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when a woman walks in the room with a brick in her hand, what are you going to do, right? <laughs> except that I know one. Funny. I know one guy. She says everybody's giving me the number except one. Except for this this very yeah. unattractive guy. He didn't have good hair or good skin. I and dare the dude him. went down. He went to jail. So be warned. So <laughs> there you go. well, hey, look, I got to tell you. Like I said, this four hours, four hours, 13 minutes and 59 seconds as we speak right now has flown by. But I tell you, I, I'm telling you, I get, I, literally, I get goosebumps because you were talking about Kansas. We had only one student in our school was black, Doris Richardson. And I, to this day, we connected on Facebook. She went into the Army. To your point, I never saw, and I've moved around the world. I was attuned to seeing different cultures grow up in Iran, you know, places like that. I never once saw, I, mean, I may have missed it, but I never once saw with her in our school, anybody ever say anything bad, use, do stuff like that. And it just, it warms the heart to know it's, you know, people say, where are you from? I said, well, let me describe it this way. I'm a God-fearing, right-wing, rifle-carrying Christian farmer from Kansas, you know? Yes, I love it. <laughs> I know. But, but seriously, those, those, you talk about good people that just give you the, the shirt off their back. And um, this is, Kansas is a hidden gem. And I hope, Nobody, people don't come moving here. (laughs) But I I say that because people in California stay there. Do not move to Kansas. Because I can tell when I'm driving, I'm like, oh, they got to be from California or New York. Because at one point people were coming, they were selling their houses and coming here buying cash and just, you know, because they drive different. So I'm like, oh, that person's from California. They're not from Kansas or from New York. But when my husband and I got, were sick with COVID, if I tell you our neighbors, they brought us food. They cut our grass. I was just like, you got to, who does this? That's Kansans do this. Kansas so, yeah. Boy, there, there is an ad. I'm cutting this out and sending it to the Kansas tourism <laughs> and making them mint off of this. This is, this is my retirement plan, Murph. I'm going to copyright this and send it to them and say, here's your ad for Kansas. <laughs> yeah, but yes. then, then everybody's going to move to Kansas and Regina's going to yeah, show up I, a brick I, in her yeah, hand. And I, she'll yeah, exactly. Ready, and and I, I, like, I like a throat punch, too. Oh, Even I've never throw punched anybody. I visualize throw punching a lot. No. <laughs> well, that's well, just certainly a way to bring this podcast to an end. I'm you sorry. Know, we end up with, oh, I'm kind. I'm a Christian. I do, and I want to throat punch somebody. There no, we- I don't. Not just people that are bad people. Only people who deserve it. That's right. That's yeah. Right. That's right. <laughs>
All right. This has been a hoot. Well, Regina, thank you so much for oh coming on the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> oh sorry God. I changed the dynamics of your show, but no, I no, hope no, it's been a It was intentional. You know why? And it was because you're unique in terms of uh, guests we've had. I mean, you, you, you've checked a lot of boxes for us. No. You know, you know when I sent Morgan a note, I, I included in that note, we have to tell her story. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do. That's what we wanted to get out here. And that's why we spent so much time. You know, later we'll bring you back. We'll talk about some of the cases you work. We kind of hit on that. But I think the first thing people got to do is understand what you went through, what you overcame. And, and you know, the thing was, you were going to go blot. This this podcast would have been an hour shorter, except for the fact is we dived into your background and your background informed so much about what makes you who you are today and why you do. So, hey, this is us. People can't see it, but this is us saluting you saying job well done. Bat Patterson before it was Bat Patterson. <laughs> and do, you still, do you say just Patterson King or do you say Patterson hyphen King? I say Patterson King and please say Patterson King because my husband gets so annoyed when we go some places and they be like, yes, Mr. Patterson. <laughs> you gotta love it. So please <laughs> say Regina Patterson King. And actually, I think I may drop the Patterson now that I'm retired because the only reason I really kept it is because my dad has no sons. First and then second is because I felt like if I dropped Patterson, I would get lost in the DEA email system. Outlook would just lose me because they'd be searching for Regina Patterson, and I would be, no be, longer be Regina there. Regina King, yeah, you're right, exactly. You so I I kept it. I was like, babe, we got. I'm sorry. He was like, okay, but now I'm retired. I'm cool I, yeah. He's kind of pushing like you're keeping that. I'm like, do you know how hard it is to change a name? <sighs> uh, you, and, you and Brian have an open invitation anytime you want to come through Orlando. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank All right, you, lady. All right, well. You guys have heard an excellent story. Don't go anywhere. Everyone else, stay tuned for the debrief. You know, Steve, as we've done with many other guests, they try to gloss past stuff. And one of the, that's kind of my, I would say that's my trademark. I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. It is. Let's roll back a little bit. And when we dived into her backstory, the reason she wanted to become a cop goes back to her being in third grade, goes back to her growing up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just what she went through with her dad, what she went through, even with her mom later, when she, her mom did some things, put loans in her name and stuff, defaults, mm-hmm. repos. Uh, I mean, for for that to happen and for her to be able to not just survive, but thrive and achieve, I'm telling you, anybody with young kids who want to know what it takes to make your way in this world and get ahead, this ought to be mandatory, like our like our episode uh, with Natasha Herzig on child sex, tra- you know, on human sex trafficking, prevent that. This ought to be required uh, for kids to listen to, to say, you want to understand Here's somebody who could have used their background and the way they grew up as an excuse, and they didn't. And the other thing she didn't use as an excuse, she never once injected race into our conversations when we were talking about stuff. And, and would have none of it. And I mean, would have it, none of it. As, as you guys know, we, we see each other on videos. We're recording these, but we only tape record the audio portion. And when you mentioned that, you could, she just started almost violently shaking her head. No, I'd never, never use the race card. Just the ultimate respect for this is a true success story. It's reminiscent of Sherry Foster's story, of yep. Tracy Walder's story, and with the problems she had at the FBI Academy. It's a shame. I, I just hate to think that this is is an anti-female type thing that is still going on. I mean, this, for R- Regina, this was you know twenty something years ago. But well, Murph, and you know when you said earlier, you know again, you're, and we're loyal to the profession, and I know you're loyal to DEA. But the one person I'd like to go back and just find out what the 
fuck was their problem was the guy who took her weapon and screwed with her sights at the academy. You're not kidding, especially, you know, I mean, you, you heard me tell my story when I, I'd been shooting competition when I joined DEA. And so the first day on the range, they treat you like you've never held a gun. And, and that's the right way to do it. And uh, so we just slow fire from seven yard line or five yard line. I can make one hole with six rounds. And this we were shooting revolvers back then. And the instructor comes running up and he says, you get credit for one round. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? There's six rounds in there. He said, I know they're all, but I can't see the holes. If I can't see the hole, you don't get credit. So then I start spreading them out on the paper. And well, then I get your it. problem was you turned it into a smiley face and that <laughs> pissed your instructor off. <laughs> well, I had to go write a memo while I was being a smart ass. <laughs> but anyway, that has nothing to do with what's It's a shame what Rogina went through. Thank God she's strong in her faith, uh, strong in her belief. She's obviously very happy with her husband. I mean, I just, the, the citizens of the United States lost a true American patriot asset when Regina retired. And it's pretty much because she got what passed you over. Heard her story. Yeah. 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 And I'll tell you, but the one, the biggest takeaway for me, Murph, is uh, she loves Kansas State Troopers. <laughs> <laughs> and that was post Morgan. <laughs> Who do you think blazed the trail for others to follow? Well, somebody had to go get the coffee and donuts. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> well, hey, guys, but seriously, have your kids listen to this. This is this is one of our best episodes, I think, simply because we didn't – I mean, there was stuff around it like her being the youngest agent really to like write a Title III and run stuff like that. But, but it's – no matter what you threw at her, she overcame it. No matter what you threw at her, she overcame it. And she got to a point where it's not that she gave up, but she says, look, I think my talents are best suited in my community and to do stuff. And she moved on to do that. So this is us saluting her saying, we wish you well in that. Absolutely. And, uh, she, she exhibited leadership qualities through this entire, through her entire career. Uh, just loved it. Thank you so well, much. And she was humble enough to know when she was kind of being a pain in the ass. And she said, what's going on here? And they can't, you know, had her other agents and other people said, Hey, look, mm-hmm. and she was humble enough to go seek guidance and get feedback and change, you know, how she was. So that's a sign of a true leader too. somebody who's willing to listen and make changes. So absolutely. This is us saluting you. So if you guys like that episode, and I think you would, uh, head on over to Apple Podcasts, hit those five stars, go to Spotify, hit the five stars as well. Let us know what you think about it. Leave some comments, drop some comments in there. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. You know, we, we'll put pictures and stuff there. Follow us on that thing they call social media. It's an internet sensation, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But make sure you check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Like I said, we just finished our latest installment, the finale episode, two hours, the real DEA Narcos on the real DEA Narcos Cali edition, the takedown of the Cali cartel. And I got to tell you, between seriously, Murph, giving you and JP props for what you guys did and how these guys followed on. Imagine four people. Really, I mean, you had a lot of other help, right? But basically, mm-hmm. you two led that. Dave and Chris led that. Four people take down two major cartels. Yep, that's that's what you get in law enforcement. You get there are so many dedicated professionals. We don't take credit. There's nothing special about us hobbing around and tell everybody we're small town country boys. We got to work a really big case. It kind of got blown out of proportion by a show called Narcos. But it's an example of the professionalism that you see every day in the law enforcement culture. It's just that you just don't hear about it. And that's why we have Game of Crime, so you can hear about these folks. Well, thank God it got blown out of proportion, because if I understand you're going on your eighth year of the speaking tour of... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. I mean, I'm not complaining. Believe me, I don't. We don't want to get. Back and you've to got a lot of stuff lined up already for this year. You and I were talking down in Orlando. You got what, like another 15 things lined up for this year already? Already, and it's 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 like when it rains, and it's pours. only February. I know it. <laughs> I know it. No complaints here. 
All right. Well, no complaints either from me. So, hey, guys, uh, like I said, uh, make sure you check out this episode. Share it with your friends. Tell one, share one. And look, once again, we thank you guys. You are our players. We thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Kansas Trooper hi friendly game of crimes. 